Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Brutes. Preachers. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. What a rib. No, you have a big There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. It, it, it. Was he there? I was there. Say something I don't give a shit. <laughs> I ain't scared of shit. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. Q Bruce. I love you. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm excellent, man. What a hell of a week we've had. What a great weekend we had last weekend. Um, Life couldn't be any better, can it? Last week's episode was all about the big boss man. And man, there were two schools of thought. Some people said, oh man, this is a top five best episode ever. And others said it sucked. And it sounded like uh, Bruce was inside of a bag or pulling a Ric Flair and eating during the podcast. Just for the record that right now is Conrad Thompson making fun of me and crumbling up a damn uh, thing there. I'm old. I was basically in a bag. I was at the, at the Clarion in Orlando. So Hey, you know, sometimes things happen and we do what we can to get the product out. At least we don't say, oh, well, you know what? We just can't do it this week. We'll skip this week. They'll they'll pick us up next week. Yeah, I do. We do what we have to do. I do want to mention that the only time we've ever missed a week is when Bruce was in a hurricane without power. And even then we didn't miss a week. We had best ofs and some new intros from me and some friends and some never before heard clips. But We do our best to bring it to you every week. Obviously, it takes an extensive amount of time to put together the research. So sometimes that doesn't happen until the day before we're supposed to actually air the damn thing. And by that point, Bruce now is a lot of times in Orlando for MLW. So we do what we can. And uh, we're trying to be committed to you to bring you that content every week. But I thought it was a good show, man. I love the Big Boss Man character, so maybe I was biased. But what everybody was really talking about, and let's just get it over with, is you stirred people up with your story about Dave Meltzer last week. And when I asked you to sort of clarify it, you had a really great explanation for me that maybe everybody needs to hear. Well, here's the thing, you know, for for people that, that are always going to bitch and moan the loudest, those are the people that are always going to pay to be there. And it, it's funny that, the, the loudest ones are, are always going to be there no matter what. So the people that always like to complain and Dave Meltzer likes to complain and Dave Meltzer likes to bitch and moan, but it, it's really funny to me. If you go back and you listen to the story and you listen to what I said and talking about how Vince came to me and Vince talked about a report that these people had come to him and said, they, okay, they, you put in parentheses there, that Dave Meltzer was going to be a part of this expose and that Dave Meltzer was going to do this and Dave Meltzer was going to do that. So someone had come and told us that. I told that story. He gets all bent out of shape talking about it was a lie. It isn't a lie. It's 100% factual story. It did happen. But uh, it's interesting. I wonder how it feels on the other foot, Dave. 
that someone's talking about something that you say you didn't do, that you say isn't true, when that actually is the truth, and it isn't rumor and innuendo, it's straight from the horse's mouth, and it's straight from me, and it was straight from Vince to me. It wasn't somebody who had to buy a ticket for the fourth row and then call you long distance and tell you what they think happened. So, uh, fuck Dave Meltzer, we'll just get that out of the way right now, and there you go. So did I do that good? I'm sure you probably said it prettier, and I probably said it prettier the first time. You did. I can tell you're just fired up right now because I said his name early. But I feel like we should clarify, in your opinion, what you said or what you meant to say was someone else, not Dave Meltzer, called and said that Dave Meltzer had called them to shop a story, and then that person told Vince McMahon who told it to you. So... You heard it from Vince, who heard it from a media source, who claimed that Dave Meltzer had something, but it might not have ever been Dave Meltzer or anyone who's ever met Dave Meltzer. But by the time the story got to you, it was definitely Dave Meltzer. So this is the rumor and innuendo that we address here. No one ever said that Dave Meltzer had this story or that he was shopping this story. It's that someone said that Dave Meltzer had this story and was shopping this story, right? Right, and that there was this big expose, and they were utilizing his name because he likes to claim that he's the wrestling expert. What he really is is the wrestling gossip monger and king of the rumor and innuendo and falsehoods. Well, let's not get too crazy. Well, no, I'm just being factual. Okay, let's talk about something else factual. The Million Dollar Man episode just aired on something else to wrestle with on the WWE Network. Uh, one of my favorite episodes that we ever did here because we got that wonderful story about not only Vince McMahon's personal cape collection, yes, that's a real thing, but the phenomenal story about the belt being stolen, but maybe the pinnacle of something to wrestle stories, Vince McMahon on an airplane when a little cigarette situation happens. If you haven't already, go check out the WWE Network. We certainly appreciate all the support there. The show continues to get better. Uh, we're getting our rhythm down. WWE's getting their rhythm down. We had more clips than ever this week. And so is our man who performed a phenomenal job making us look and sound good. We need to give him a shout out. Josh over at Electra Entertainment. If you're in the Baltimore area and you need a DJ, Josh is your man at Electra DJ. That's D-E-E-J-A-Y.com. Electra DJ.com. And Bruce, I feel like we've, uh, we've talked about everything, but while we're fucking here, it's episode 100, you know, this is the first time I've done a podcast that made it to a hundred episodes. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. So and we did it <laughs> and we, we did, did it, it together. together. Yes. Yeah. I had two Rick pods. It. You had a Bruce Pritchard uh, pod before. And now on our, both of our, uh, I guess we're on, I'm on my third divorce now in the podcast land. And I guess you're on your second or We'll figure that out. I guess I'm on my third marriage now with you, but does it count if you marry the same one over it? No, I'm going, this is my second one. I think that Ric Flair run. I know. You know one. what? The divorces count. I'm sorry. They do. So this would be your third, right? Okay. So this is your second. Well, I didn't, I, I don't know. I, I, would it be a divorce the first time I just stopped <laughs> the first time? So I don't know. It was a breakup. Well, well, I, I wasn't necessarily married really the first time. Well, I'm not technically married to a flair yet. So 
We'll figure it well, out. Well, but, but you know, still. And think about this. Did you really believe 100 episodes ago that we would be 50 episodes, much less 100 episodes? No, I thought we could get to 50. 100's a big deal. And I feel like we should mention to everybody, this is a little milestone I haven't shared before. I don't even know that you know this. But the very first something to wrestle happened on Friday, August 5th. Nine, uh, I said 19, 2016. <laughs> so Friday, August 5th, 2016. What else happened on that day, Conrad? It's my first date with my lady friend who I'm now engaged to. So like two of the greatest things ever to happen in your life happened on August 5th, 2016. It was the start of two of my best relationships that hopefully last me a lifetime or until you can't kick out. Well, you know, I mean, I'm just saying. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've already had that one scare. Fuck, here we go. So let's talk about it, man. We, we, we wanted to do something sort of special for you guys and sort of cool. So we're going to give you a couple of different, uh, I don't know, little bonuses. Now we're going to save the big one for the end. Stay tuned for the end. But I do want to go ahead and tell you tomorrow, we're finally loading the 1992 Royal Rumble on the podcast feed. So it was YouTube only. We said it was going to be YouTube only. I asked Bruce in Baltimore, Hey man, why don't we go ahead and give him a thank you for bonus show? You know, a little extra something or another, make it episode one Oh one in celebration of episode 100. I sold Bruce on it. Cause that's what I do. I'm a salesman. And tomorrow you'll be able to just uh, open up your podcast app and ta-da the 1992 Royal rumble. Kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah. And I wasn't even there. Well, it doesn't matter. You just make shit up anyway. So that's what I'm planning on doing today. Well, buckle up boys and girls. It's one of our most requested topics and we're going to do this differently. One of, uh, our sleeper episodes in these last hundred episodes was the Houston wrestling episode. And I think one of the reasons that that sticks out is because it's the least formatted. It's just guys talking and telling stories. And that's what we're going to do today. When we cover Bruce, do you want to give him a taste? brother love so here we go man let's talk about the beginning a lot of people think that you started as brother love in the wwe in 1988 but you'd actually worked there prior to that and we've covered that before that you came over after wrestlemania 3 but that's 87 so start from the beginning about you know what you did from 87 to 88 and how this opportunity came about for someone who was really hired to work behind the scenes was now in front of the camera. Well, it's always interesting to me when people go back and research my career, they look at the time that I spent in the WWE. And if you look at Wikipedia, don't look at Wikipedia. They have my middle name misspelled for the longest time. They had my wrong birth date, but there's just things in there. No, I started in 1987, as we've discussed here many times, to work behind the scenes and be in the television end of the business, producing the television product for WWE. I started out doing the international and cable programming and graduated to taking over all of it in January of 1988. So I took care of all the syndication and everything else, and that was the production behind the scenes. Then, you know, along the way, I helped out with creative and it was that year pretty much of getting to know 
Vince McMahon and Pat Patterson and feeling free being able to, to pitch ideas and talk to them about different things. And I never in a million years, um, I think that there was a part of me as a kid that always wanted to be a wrestler. That's all I ever wanted to do since I was four years old. But when I landed behind the scenes, I loved that so much. And I got to play every part that I decided that's what I wanted to do. And I had pretty much given up my, my hopes and dreams of ever appearing on camera until, you know, that fateful day when I thought, Hey, what if, and decided to go ahead and, and pitch an idea. Well, and you pitched it. And I think a lot of people, uh, probably assume that this is a Jimmy Swaggart deal, but you actually had a different motivation. I guess first we should smarten everybody up because a lot of young people are listening to this who may not even know the name I just said. So tell them why that name mattered, especially in this era, but really who was your motivation? You know, it, it all started back. And again, I go back to my childhood growing up in the South. We have actually tent revivals that used to come around and we had a Baptist church right down the street from me. They used to set up a tent in the parking lot and people would come from all over the place to watch these guest evangelists who were fire and brimstone preachers and hallelujah. And you shall go to hell if you do not repent and give your whatever. But I used to go and watch these guys. I used to sneak in and I would literally kind of lay down outside of the tent and peek in to watch because I didn't want to actually go in and sit down like everybody else. It was free. It didn't cost anything, but I was mesmerized at the way that these evangelists could captivate an audience. And at a very young age, I had some uh, very distinct views on organized religion, and I'm not bashing religion in any way, shape, or form. I just had some bad experiences with organized religion, and I wasn't really that interested in it. I kind of looked at a lot of it as a scam and some of the people in it. So you mentioned Jimmy Swaggart. Jimmy Swaggart was one of the top televangelists that was on every Sunday on television, and he had a TV show where he would preach his gospel. In addition to that, there was Jim Baker and Tammy Faye Baker, his wife, who together as a team had the 700 Club, again, on Sundays. You had Oral Roberts out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, who twice proclaimed the world was coming to an end and that he was going to die and give his life for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you had the guy that truly I patterned brother love after gentleman by the name of Robert Tilton and Robert Tilton was an evangelist out of Dallas, Texas. And Tilton was by far, in my opinion, the most entertaining, one of the best sticks that I'd ever heard in my life. And in the wrestling business, uh, during probably my years, 22, 23 years old, I was working mid South which was Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, Louisiana, Texas. And I would travel with Eddie Gilbert. We would stay in Bixby, Oklahoma, which is a little tiny town right outside of Tulsa. And we stayed at this Comfort Inn. The only thing on TV on Sunday nights was these televangelists. And Eddie Gilbert and I would sit and watch back to back to back these evangelists, one right after another. And we would take notes for promos because we did promos 
for all the individual towns the next Monday at Bill Watts's barn. And Eddie would take notes and we would go back and forth. And I just had this Southern character. I would break into cadence and Robert Tilton had a show called success in life. And he had a message and it was one of the damnedest things I'd ever heard in my life because he explained that brothers and sisters, when you have faith, the Lord will reward you with success. Now you might say, Bobby, Bobby, I, I, I don't have a lot of money. I only have $2 to my name. I'm going to tell you what to do. Send me a dollar. Because here's what's going to happen. By showing your faith, the Lord is going to reward you. And you're going to find $5. I'm going to tell you what you do. You send me three. You've just broken even, my friend. And when you send that three to show your faith, what he's going to do is he's going to shine down upon you and maybe give you a job. And you're going to earn $5 an hour now. What I want you to do is I want you to send me. Send me five. Guess what you've just done? You just doubled your money. That, my friends, is what I call success in life. And then these people would pledge. They had nothing. They didn't have a pot to piss in. But they would send him everything they had because of the way that he was able to captivate that audience, get those people to reach deep down into their pockets and give them whatever they had. Just showing that faith because they believed that Bob told them that somebody was going to look after them, that they were going to look after them, and they would live happily ever after. And I just stole that cadence, and I stole that after, you know, a long time. And I, I kind of had a had a, a rapport. And when we would travel, usually be like Vince McMahon, myself, Pat Patterson, and whoever else was in the car. And I would go into this preacher character. And Vince would go into his Southern preacher character. And he used to say to me, God damn, pal. Wrestling business ever goes down. We're going to go into religion and make some real money. And that was kind of our shtick back and forth. Until I finally got to just say, hey, what if? And I pitched in the idea. So where do you pitch it? How does it come up? Does he say that? And then you say, hey, what if right after? No, you know, I thought about it and, and I had been thinking about it for a while. Um, you know, it's really easy to pitch other, you know, other ideas for other people. But when you're talking about yourself, like for me, it was always easy to go in and campaign for someone else to make more money or to get a raise. But when it came to me, I had a hard time pitching myself and, and asking for a raise. You know what I mean? Because it feels selfish. It feels like you're unappreciative or you, you know, you're greedy, whatever. Exactly. And, and, it, and it's just hard to do. I actually pitched Vince McMahon, the brother love idea, walking through master control at Titan TV on the way to edit one. And there was a, there's a little breezeway used to be, I don't think it's set up this way anymore. I don't even know they have master control anymore. There was a little breezeway between master control and edit one, a little hallway. And Vince stopped in that hallway and looked at me and says, God damn, I love that idea. Find me someone to do that. And I said, Vince, 
I I can do it. I'm going to do it. I, it's for me. He said, not with that face, pal. Find me somebody to do it. And I was just dejected as hell. So He loved the idea, but not me. Tell me what not with that face, pal, means. You're too young or too goddamn ugly? I'm a damn good-looking man. Compared to what? Everything. Okay. I think that... So it's Leonardo DiCaprio and you, same, same. I mean, you could just... Pretty uh, much. Yeah, I get it. I mean, he's not as as strikingly handsome as I am, but, you know, I'm more mature. Oh, so you're like the Sean Connery. Yeah! I'll take Sean. I got the the little silver and shit going on. Sean Connery, brother love, same, same. Same, same. Yeah. So here's how I took it, that he felt that I had a baby face and that... Um, nobody would buy it right from me. My, my thing was I was going to slick my hair back and wear glasses and, and so you already knew what look you wanted. I had an idea. Yes, definitely. With his hair slicked back and big glasses and, and, uh, a lot of jewelry and, and that part of it I had now. Okay. So I, I was devastated and I left it alone for a while. And then finally, uh, I pitched him again and I, I didn't pitch him the idea again because he liked the idea. I pitched him me again and he kind of laughed it off. Like, <laughs> aren't you busy enough? You know, uh, uh, let's, let's think of somebody who'd be just right for that. Afford anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. And that pissed me off. Right. So I decided to... um, Hang on, before, Show you, him. before you finish, at that point, when you guys are sort of kicking it around, is there anybody else in the room or is it just you two guys? Had anybody else sort of heard about the idea of the character or is it just you two? Not yet. No, no one had heard of the idea, uh, when I first pitched him. Now, after he turned me down and told me not with that face, I did pitch Pat. I pitched, uh, Alfred Hayes, you know, and started, I uh, pitched Bobby Heenan, Ted DiBiase, Randy Savage, um, just kind of what they thought of the idea. What was the feedback you got from some of those guys? Bobby loved it. Right. Uh, Bob, Bobby was very, very supportive. Um, I think Ted kind of placated me, <laughs> to tell you the truth. Savage was Savage was really supportive of it. Pat. I don't think that he saw it. I don't think that Pat really got it, saw the character or really got me doing it. So while you're making this pitch, does anybody Vince or anybody else say, Oh, what about so-and-so in terms of here's another person who might be able to do the character? No. Okay. So nobody has any suggestions. It's not like it was almost this guy or that guy. Nobody made any suggestions. Just, Hey, that could work. We just got to find a guy. And that's as far as it got. That's as far as it got. Yes. Okay. And so then you decided to show him. I didn't mean to cut you off. I just wanted to get that. 
No, this is good that we're just going back and forth with no agenda. I like that. Uh, so then I decided I would show him I could do it with this face. Right. And I put some stuff in my hair and I slicked my hair back. I got a pair of glasses, you know, clear glasses from the uh, – I store where you get the wait, glasses. Wait, wait, wait. They didn't like to, here's the funny thing. They didn't like to sell you glasses with clear frames in, with clear glass in them. It was like a major deal to get a pair of glasses. Ultimately, where'd you get those glasses? At glasses are us. Yeah. They were big up so, in that area. Big in Stanford in the mall. Yeah. So I go over and I called and Vince was in a meeting. And he was in a meeting with uh, the head of finance, Doug Sages, and Jim Troy, who was the head of the international. I walked in, and his assistant was sitting there. She had her office out in front, and Vince's door was closed. And I'm like, who's he in there with? She goes, he's still in with Jim and Doug. I took a deep breath, and I walked in. And I'll What were you wearing? Remember, what were you wearing? I was wearing a suit. I was just wearing a regular suit. I had like a, a tweed jacket, okay, tie, but I had my hair slicked back and glasses. That was the big change in look for me. Hair slicked back and glasses. That's it. No right. no white suit, no paint, no, no. no makeup, none of that. No, okay. no, none of that. And I walk in and I just went into a sermon. Hypothetically, said, what'd you say? Uh, basically came in and, and brothers, we are here today. And as I look upon you, I look upon a room full of sinners, but you, my friends should not waller in your sin because you are loved. And when you go home tonight to see your significant others and you dug to your wife, when you go home, you shall be. And I just kind of went into, but I remember going over and laying hands on on Doug and I put my hand on, on Doug's head. And I put my hand on Vince's head. And I, I said, you babe, shall be healed and feel the love. Now I didn't even have the name brother love yet. Right. But I did have love because I knew I couldn't do religion. I had to do love instead of God or religion. And I had to have the book of love instead of a Bible. And I just probably spent, it felt like, a half hour. I was probably in the room a minute and a half, two minutes, maybe three. But they were so dumbfounded that I kind of burst in. Right. And Vince was chuckling. And it was tense when I walked in the room, too. Apparently, it was a pretty serious meeting. And I walked out. And I just walked right by his assistant, got in my car. And the office was at 1055 Summer Street. And the studio was at 120 Hamilton and I drove back. I walk upstairs to my office and my assistant is sitting outside my door and she says, what'd you do? I said, why? She said, Vince has called twice. Okay. How did he sound? <laughs> and she goes, he said for you to call him. So I go in my office, I shut the door and I call him. I don't know if I'm going to be fired or, or what. And he said, Bruce, Let's take a look at it on camera. Set it up in the studio. I want, I want cameras, a three-camera shoot. Set it up. I want to see it on camera. Like, done. 
So I booked some time in the studio and, and got, you know, did it when we had cameramen and everything in because we didn't keep cameramen on staff full time at the time. And we had, you know, a little curtain set up and I had makeup there and everything. And Vince was going to come over and produce it. So when he gets there, we're, we're, we're talking about some different things. And um, he says, hey, you got to get makeup. I go in. The makeup lady does my makeup. I go out and I, and I do it. And, and he is feeding me stuff the whole time. You know, try this, try that. And I'm working the camera and I'm doing all the thing that I've seen all these televangelists do. And I finish up and we go in to watch it. And when I'm watching, I'm looking at it and go, God damn, my face is red. Is a rib. Vince had gone to the makeup artist and told her to make my face bright red. And when I finished, I had makeup all over my shirt, all over my tie, all over my jacket. I mean, I was covered with this red makeup. I don't know if he knew what the hell he was doing. Obviously he did, but I didn't know at the time. I fell in love with it because I had seen an interview with Tammy Faye Baker, with Maureen O'Boyle from A Current Affair. And Tammy Faye Baker was famous for wearing a lot of makeup, and she would cry on camera, and her mascara would run, and her makeup would run. And this Maureen O'Boyle interviewer asks her, Tammy, why do you wear so much makeup? If you talk about being real and all this stuff. And Tammy Faye Baker, with a straight face, said, I don't wear makeup. Oh, my. So as I'm looking at all this makeup, I, I thought that was the greatest thing I'd ever heard. And I thought the more makeup I wear, the phonier I am, the better it is. Right. So Vince was like, all right, we got to think of a name. We got to think of when we want to do this. And for the next several days, we would talk and I would write ideas down and I had a whole list of names and I had a whole list of ideas. And Vince was going to give me a an allowance to go out and have like really 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 nice expensive suits made because he wanted the look to be um you know at the time thousand dollar suits that was a lot of money for a suit he wanted like custom made really really nice uh tailored suits and we're talking on the phone one day on a sunday morning on TV, I'm watching, and there's a preacher, and he's wearing a white suit, red shirt, white tie. And I said, Vince. Do you I remember the guy's book. name? I don't. Okay. I don't. It was it was in Stanford, Connecticut um, on a local channel, but it just, that was it. When I saw it, that was it. And he goes, damn, I like that. I said, think about it. I said, we do that makeup. The makeup will get all over the, the jacket and everything. Then we started talking about names. He says, what will your name be? I said, it's got to be brother something. And brother Bruce, brother this, brother that, brother this. And then I started talking about love. And I said, you know, we, we have to be careful. We can't go religion. He says, no, you're right. This is all got to be about love. It's got to be about the book of love. I said, it's brother love. I love it. And Brother Love was born 
pacing in my bedroom <laughs> of my condo in Stanford, Connecticut on that Sunday morning. He said, get the suit. Um, you're debuting next TV. And the next TV was like in two weeks. And that was it. And it was done. And I was scared shitless because it was real. Well, boys and girls, that's the story of brother love. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope. Hey guys, next week, British bulldog. And don't forget WWE network, Roddy Piper this Wednesday. And uh, thanks for tuning in. That's it. So, all right. Hey man, that was an easy one. I know. God, man, you know, it's longer than I thought. I thought we'd be done a lot quicker. That's what she said. Hey, well, you know, you know. I mean, I'm glad that we were able to sort give them the bonus too. You know, I mean, they're probably feeling like what the fuck under 45 minutes, but you know, we got the Royal rumble tomorrow. That's true. And it's only fair. So when did Pat see the character? Pat saw the character for the first time, probably at TV in full regalia. <laughs> what was his so- reaction? And about my God, Bruce, look at you. We don't even know it's you. Oh, and a place of brother love. I love it. Oh, God. Uh, what? What is it? <laughs> Pretty much. But, well, you know, Pat, well, Pat got on board and Pat was pretty, pretty damn, you know, supportive with it and everything. But it was, uh, he, he was happy for me. And I don't think until Pat was getting a lot of it from Vince, you know, so he was getting Vince's interpretation of the character a lot of times. And, and I had Vince and I, we, we were on the same page. Um, and as much as, as I say, it was, you know, it was my idea. It was my thing. Vince is the one that really helped me so much with those nuances and, and the little tiny details like me, the, the, uh, and the pause and, and, and the cadence and, you know, really getting me to take my time. It was, it was little things that when you're creating a character and you're trying to come up with things that you miss because you're so excited to get the character out. You miss the nuances and you miss the details. And Vince, when I would do it, instead of starting out telling me what to do, he would listen to what was in my head and then he would pull me back and edit and produce and, and hit, hit the nuances and hit the details with things. So there, there were things that just happened, but I dare say that without, without Vince really getting behind the character and believing in it, it wouldn't have been what it was. Right. Cause he, he, he liked it. Um, he knew it, he understood it and he brought it all together and it just helped me pull that little shit together to make it actually mean something. Now, the people that were in the studio that I worked with on a day-to-day basis were kind of like, what the fuck? You know, what the hell is Bruce going to do on camera? He's not a wrestler. Like, okay, let me back up here for a minute. A minute ago, you said, you know, all Pat knew was what Vince had told him. And what Vince saw in the character, he hadn't really talked to me about 
so you were sort of starting down the path of we're on different pages or we had some differences, but then you immediately said we're on the same page. So in, in theory, the character, you guys were on the same page, but there were some little differences between what Vince had told Pat about the character versus the way you sort of envisioned it. What were those? I think that it was just more in the presentation of, of Vince pitching it to Pat because I had pitched it to Pat early on as what I saw when I pitched it to Vince and Vince had kind of shit on me and told me to go find somebody. So I'd pitched it to Vince, but now Pat working with Vince every day and Vince kind of giving his version of this character we're going to do with Brucey. God damn. He's going to be an evangelist, Pat. Yeah, that's great. He's going to be a, what, what is an evangelist? Is a doctor? What is it? I don't know. So it just was, I guess, I, I guess it was just the nuanced stuff. It was the, the heel tendencies, the, the I love you and the the slowdown and the obnoxiousness and the in your face in the camera, the fisheye lenses with the real severe, weird close ups. Um, it just was I, I don't know that. I don't know that anybody got it till we saw it until it actually happened on the set with the podium and all that shit. Um I don't think anybody got it until that actually happened. So did you go out and buy just one white suit or did you buy multiples? I wasn't that confident in it. <laughs> I got one white suit, couldn't find a red shirt in Stanford, Connecticut. Imagine that. Um, but I found a really deep, like pink, a dark pink shirt. So the first incarnation of brother love was with a pink shirt and a kind of a, off white suit and a white tie and white and Michelle, Michelle Carlucci is the one that found it for me. And who's Michelle Carlucci, Michelle Carlucci, man. She basically runs the studio now and she was my assistant at the time. And she, uh, has been there forever, been there longer than I have was him, you know? Um, so she helps you source some of this stuff. I mean, you just run on down to the mall and pick it up at JC Penney's or where are you picking this stuff up at? brothers oh god What's the name of the shop and I'm, I'm serious and it was it was in the hood and the name of it was brothers oh my god in downtown stanford connecticut so let's talk about you know when you're, you're creating this character you go shopping you make the decision to do makeup that day that's when vince says oh you got to do makeup or did you sort of know you were doing that before you got there I, when Vince did the makeup rib, when we did the run through in the studio so he could see it on camera, I knew after that, that the makeup had to be a big part of it Okay. and that it, the, the bright red coupled with the white suit, I look like a, as Dustin Rhodes would say, pumpkin head, but it just worked, man. And it, it fit. How long did it take for you to, um, apply the makeup? I didn't, I always had a makeup artist that did it and it usually would take me about 15, 20 minutes in that damn makeup chair. I took, I took as long as, uh, look as took as long as most of the females. Yeah. Okay. So when you get to the building, you're going to do it for the first time. You guys already had sort of the set in mind. Whose idea was the set? Do you guys sit around a table and sort of sketch it out? Does creative services come up with it? What does the set process look like? 
the set process was something that Vince and I came up with that was just to be simple. And he's like, all we need is a damn lavender curtain and red carpet and a podium. And I want a white microphone. Doesn't get any easier than that. It was simple. It was meant to be simple. It was meant to be like you're sitting at home and you're watching the gospel hour on Sunday morning. And that was that was kind of the, the feeling behind it. So they put it together and put it together pretty inexpensively. And the rest, as they say, is history. You said they. Who are they? Nelson Swegler was a head of production at the time of like operations and production. So Nelson would work with set design people and he had it built and got it all put together and made sure that it was up at TV. So I don't know. We didn't go through creative services. We didn't have anybody like that, make any drawings for it or anything like that. It was as simple as Vince saying, I want a lavender curtain, red carpet, white podium and a white microphone. And so then you show up that day and ta-da, it's there. It was there. It was the first time I saw it was at, at my debut TV. First time I ever saw it. So when you're, um, you know, sort of getting ready for the segment, what, so, what sort of scripting existed back then? I mean, I know it's not like it was now, but what existed for the first version of this like talk show element? It feels like it would be more scripted than just, Hey, you got three minutes, go get this guy over. I'm not even sure I got the, Hey, you got three minutes. This is your introduction. You're going to go out. Bobby's going to introduce you. Tell them who you are and tell them you're coming back. Second show, we'll introduce DiBiase as your benefactor. Third show, we're introducing Boss Man on the set. Now they know you're here every week. Uh, <laughs> okay. That's when you're at, I mean. So when you showed up to work that day, you know, you're going to do the skit. You bring all your shit. You're sitting in the makeup chair. At that point, you don't know what the fuck you're doing until he comes over and says, go do it. No, I knew what I was doing probably a couple days beforehand, but no detail to it. I, literally what I just gave you is what I knew. So in those days, the other, you know, the other part that people, and I'm sure the, the writers and stuff now would just go, huh? What? We didn't have rehearsals. We didn't have scripts. We didn't have any of that shit. But for this, Vince called a meeting. Uh, the other thing we didn't have a lot of, we didn't have meetings with all the talent. It's for damn sure. Vince called a meeting with all of the talent to come into the arena and sit down in the stands. Then... Vince says, all right, we're going to rehearse. It's like, well, we're going to rehearse after everybody, you know, I mean, you're going to have your meeting and then we'll go. That's your audience right there. And I'm looking out. I'm in my little white suit. I got makeup on. I am scared shitless because I remember Don Morocco sitting in the front row and Vince looking at Don going, <laughs> damn it, Donnie, this should have been your gimmick. This would be perfect for you. There's Greg Valentine. There's 
I mean, it was it was everybody. All the agents are there. Um, Savage is there. I mean, everybody's there sitting there like, why in the fuck are we having to come out here and watch this happy horse shit? So I, I'm terrified. Vince is wearing a headset and Vince plays the part of Bobby Heenan introduces me. I come running and he goes, do it just like you're going to do it tonight. And I come out, I've got pictures of this. I'll, I'll, I'll pull them out and I'll post some on Twitter this, this week. Um, comes out and I hug Vince. I've got pictures of us hugging and embracing and he's, Oh, Hey brother love. And, and he made me do the entire segment, which was really, really short, which all I did was talk about. I have a message, a message of love and I will be here. And it was, I'm here to tell you, I love you. And then Vince was like, Two more times. I love you. I love you. And that was the segment. It was just quick. Bobby Heenan introducing me. And he made me do it over and over again. And everybody's watching me. From there, he brings DiBiase and Virgil out. And we do the my benefactor bit where now I'm going to be here every week to bring you my message of love because my benefactor has now made it possible for me to be here each and every week. So you knew right away that this was going to be something you tied to DiBiase? That was Vince's idea. It was Vince's idea as a way to explain why I was there and also to heap a little more heat on DiBiase. It was just an explanation versus, you know, I wasn't a wrestler and throw some more. Also give me instant credibility by putting me with Ted DiBiase and Bobby Heenan. Yeah, I had Heenan endorse me right off the bat and introduce me. And then DiBiase right behind that the next week pay for me to be there each and every week. So everybody knows I'm a heel and I'm associated with two top guys in, in the company on the heel side. Then there was the Slickster, who is a shoot uh, preacher, minister. And he's watching this, and he's kind of watching it off to the side, and this is his night to introduce and debut the big boss man. And I'm like, hey, Slick, uh, yeah, so we're working together at Nigles. Mm, what are you doing, brother? Well, it's kind of this televangelistic thing. And he goes, yeah, I don't think I can do this. And Slick didn't, didn't want to do it, didn't want to be on the show and didn't want to do it, felt it was sacrilegious and was fairly unhappy about doing the show with me. And what happened? Vince had a chat with him <laughs> and he got happy. <laughs> Well, um, how, how did he start the conversation? God damn, pal. What do you mean? You don't like it? <laughs> God damn it. What the fuck? You know? Um, I think it was, Hey pal, this is a work. We're not doing religion here. And it, it was a lot of Vince with the handout. Like he does trying to 
It's okay, pal. It's not what you think. And trying to be a reassuring father figure to the slickster. Isn't this a little bit like, what do you mean? The Goldust character isn't gay. We never said he was gay. And I mean, this is like the original. He was androgynous. Brother Brother Love's not a preacher. He was a man of love. But, But you see how those are the same thing, right? I mean, artful Dodger, as Jim Cornette calls you, you see how that's the same thing. No, I'm a man of love. I never talked about religion. But I now, guess I, I guess I could see where some people who don't choose to have a broad horizon and allow new ideas and accept other things outside things might be able to only see it one way. Okay, but just so we're clear, this character that's definitely not a pastor, the motivation for you creating it was definitely pastors. No, my my motivation was con men. As a pastor. Well, they said they were pastors. I viewed them as con men. So you were mimicking the look and the cadence and the mannerisms of con men who presented themselves as pastors. There you go. Okay. Right. But I didn't present myself as that. You presented yourself as a con man of love. Uh, No, a man of love. Not a a brother of love. You know, here's what I don't get. Like, if you are clear in saying I was portraying a con man, why is it a big deal when Meltzer calls you a con man? That's a character. Yeah. It's not. Who said it was a big deal? Okay. That's what did I ask? I say Meltzer's a liar. So there you go. Of course. What's a big deal? That's the truth. Can I talk? Okay. Just asking. Of course, last week we talked about the debut of, uh, the big boss man. So we got that going for us. Roll Tide. Uh, why was it on wrestling challenge? It feels like there were lots of opportunities to debut this character in a lot of different places. Why wrestling challenge and not some of the other shows. I think that Vince was looking at this as a kind of, a approving ground. And he didn't want, he didn't want to put it out there on the A show, which was superstars of wrestling, which was the number one syndicated show that was in many more major markets. Vince wanted to get it out there, float it out, see what the reaction was first and also allow it to get over. He didn't want to put it on the A show and have it just lay a big turd and, and, uh, and then it's on the A show. So he wanted to try it out on the secondary show, which was wrestling challenge. And that, that way, get my legs under me. If there was something there, then there was always the possibility to move up. But if you start on superstars and shit the bed, there's nowhere to go. If I shit the bed on uh, wrestling challenge, then maybe I can go over and do something on cable for a little bit and get my legs under me. But it was, it was a conscious decision on his part to try it out there first. Who are some of your uh, favorite guests early on? One of my favorite, my personal favorite appearances is the one where um, Andre's on there, but we'll talk about that a little later. Anybody really like this character? It feels like something, and I know people are going to think I'm making fun. It feels like something that Jake the Snake could have had some fun with. Jake the Snake was, first of all, just being able to work with Jake in in that genre was fascinating as hell because Jake was someone that you didn't have to do a whole lot of talking with. He was somebody that you knew once you got out there, it was going to be a good sparring session. He was an excellent promo. 
You never really knew what the hell was going to come out of him, but you had a damn good idea it was going to be riveting. So Jake was somebody that you didn't need a lot of preparation for. You didn't have to lay out a bunch of stuff. It was just something that you could go out and spar. So Jake, without a doubt, was one of my all-time favorites ever (laughs) working with Jake because it was easy, but it was also good. Uh, Bobby Heenan. Any opportunity, anytime ever to do anything with Bobby Heenan, you didn't have to think about it. Bobby was so quick-witted, Bobby knew how to get people over. And Bobby would give me suggestions beforehand. And Bobby would just give you the lead, and then he would take off from there. But he worked with people, and being on camera with him, going back and forth, was just a day in the park. And then probably, you know, early on, my challenge days, uh, getting to work with Randy Savage because Savage was just so friggin' intense. If you weren't in the moment, you were screwed with Macho Man. Let's talk about who didn't like it. Is there anybody who didn't like working with brother love? I know you mentioned slick. I want to believe as a little Hulkamaniac that Hulk Hogan did not like this. Well, when brother love debuted, Hulk was on one of his sabbaticals doing whatever it was that he was doing, uh, the movie or whatever. And Hulk came back and I remember asking him, I said, Hey man, uh, what do you, what do you think? You, you like the gimmick? And he was like, brother, I saw you on TV and I wished I had a gun because you get the kind of heat that people want to kill you. He says, I, I hated it. Absolutely. He goes, I, I, he goes, I don't know if, if I could work with you. I don't know what the hell to do with that. So I, I'm confused because I like you, but man, that gimmick is, that gimmick's heat. That gimmick's kind of stiff. So his first inclination, only seeing it on TV, was major heat. He felt it was sacrilege. Um, didn't like it. Didn't did not like it at first. Only watching it on TV. And then the other one. I don't like Brother Love. Oh man, I loved his appearance on there with the face paint. That's that's some good stuff. Well, getting him to that point was was tough because Andre and, and here's the crazy thing, man. I've known Andre since I was like 12 years old. Okay. He had watched me grow up as a kid in Houston. Every time he'd come in and known him a long time. Andre could not make the differentiation between Bruce and brother love. He liked Bruce. I know like brother love. And he didn't want, he, he just, he wouldn't talk to me when I was in the gimmick. Um, kind of like basically shooed me away when I was in the gimmick. So much so that I felt like the guys felt when Andre didn't like you, <laughs> you know, kind of scary because if the boss doesn't like you, you're screwed. So Vince, uh, SummerSlam was coming up, and it was the the Mega Powers and the Mega Bucks. 
and it was Ted DiBiase and Andre and, and Vince had scheduled Andre to be on the Brother Love Show. And I made the comment to Vince. I said, Vince, I don't think Andre likes Brother Love too much. What are you talking about? I don't think he likes me. Was, Bruce, you've known him forever. I said, no, no, no. So I get that. I, I, he likes Bruce. He doesn't like Brother Love. When I put the shit on, man, I mean, he's he's different. And Vince actually, we had a meeting with Andre, with me in my suit, but no makeup. My hair's still down and everything. And he's like, boss, this is Bruce. You know Bruce. I like Bruce. Bruce's Brother Love. He's playing a character, boss. It's it's a character. I know like Brother Love. I like Bruce. It was it was almost like dealing with his child right. at that point. But Vince got through to him, and once he got out there, he came back and shook my hand and said, that was great. I love that. And that was one of the things. It kind of became a recurring theme because later on, the first time that I ever worked with Hulk, and Hulk came on and, and we did something with him, and we got back, and he was like, brother, we got to work a program. That was heat. Once the guys were out there with me, I had, man, I did have heat. I, I had friggin' hot, red hot, white heat because of the gimmick. And I think people with the religion thinking it was a religious deal, um, I was an asshole. It was, it was controversial. And... People that, that love that, I love that kind of heat. Once the boys got out there, they, they dug it for the most part. Well, let's talk about something that was supposed to be like a big splash because the character debuted in June of 98, right? June, June of 88. That's what I'm yeah. being my bad. So I know what you meant. Two months later in August of 88, the big show is of course, SummerSlam 88 and, uh, allegedly, and we've told this story briefly before there was supposed to be a big splash on the brother love show, but let's talk about SummerSlam 88 and what a big deal that was to you, because this is probably your first time doing something like this on pay-per-view and whatnot, right? Well, it was the first ever, uh, it was the, now the third pay-per-view that the company was doing, you know, they'd done WrestleMania. They'd already done a survivor series. Now Here's this SummerSlam idea that's a brand new pay-per-view. It's going to be out of Madison Square Garden, which, again, was a big deal. Live. You know, everything that you can add up to make it important. And Vince is going to have a Brother Love show live on SummerSlam with a very special guest. Originally, originally, the first idea was to have as my guest a young lady by the name of Jessica Hahn. Now, Jessica Hahn was the secretary of Jim Baker, who he got caught. Jim Baker was the top televangelist in the country. He got caught in bed with his secretary, Jessica Hahn. Huge scandal that left him disgraced and helped set Brother Love on fire because of the televangelist scandal. The first idea was we were going to have Jessica Hahn as my guest and as my uh, mistress or my, my assistant, okay, for this one night. 
and you can read all the connotations there that you want. I don't know why people would think this was a religious deal. Anyway, uh, that kind of fell through. Falling in our lap was what would have really been the major special guest deal. And that was going to be the debut of the Nature Boy, Ric Flair, at SummerSlam 1988 and being a guest on the Brother Love Show. Well, as things uh, kind of had a habit of doing and negotiating <laughs> with Rick through the years and the different times that he was ready to leave Jim Crockett Promotions and the NWA and WCW, uh, we were going right down to the very last minute in the weekend before before we finally Vince realized, you know, Rick's not coming. We're not going to have Rick Flair, which left us in a bit of a pickle because we've been advertising this huge surprise guest for the brother love show in New York, Madison square garden. And I have no idea who it's going to be. I doubt Vince really had an idea who the hell it was going to be. Um, so instead of Jessica Hahn, who was major tabloid news everywhere, and instead of being the nature boy, Ric Flair, it was settled on, Hacksaw Jim Duggan. <laughs> now, I'm not demeaning Hacksaw in any way, shape, or form because Jim was returning at the time, and it was a big return as well, but it didn't have the cachet of a Jessica Hahn or, or a Ric Flair because Duggan had been there before, and it, and it wasn't just as new. Um, but it was, it was a lot of fun, and for me, the crazy part about it was it was my first time ever doing live TV. It was my first time ever in Madison Square Garden as a performer. And you add all those things up, we get there, and the TV folks have a surprise for me. So for the Brother Love show on this, they're going to do a special lighting treatment. Now, all the kids are sitting at home now going, ah, oh, everybody gets a lighting treatment. Back then, nobody got lighting treatments. And this was going to be a pink uh light fall over the audience and a pink spotlight follow me down and all this shit really big special thing so i'm standing in the aisle and i'm watching the show beforehand uh again i'm scared to death because it's live tv it's madison square garden all this crap and vince is standing next to me and when uh, i'm probably a match away from going by and pat patterson walks by and goes Hey, Brucey, good luck tonight. And Vince stops Pat. And he says, Patrick, that's not Bruce. That's Brother Love. He says, come here, pal. And he opens the curtain a little bit and he goes, look out there. Madison Square Garden. The most famous arena in the entire world. Eight. 18,000 people live. And then he turns back and he looks at Gorilla Monsoon, who was manning the gorilla position. He says, Gino, how many people watch it on pay-per-view? Monsoon doesn't even look up. Five million, Vinny. Five million watching on pay-per-view. You know what, pal? You own them. Each and every one of them. And he's holding his hand out and he's pointing to his palm. He goes, you got him right here, pal. 
You own each and every one of them. So if I wasn't already nervous enough, now I'm like fucking just physically shaking. I walk out for my entrance, my music, my big debut. Now, it wasn't as bad as Titus O'Neil, but when I do my little pirouette, I trip and about eat it on my way to the ring for my debut in Madison Square Garden, tripping on the step up. And I got out there and did it and uh, got out without a hitch. And that was my debut on live television pay-per-view in the garden. But it was pretty cool shit. No doubt about it. And um, I guess we should mention that the show eventually gets bumped up from wrestling challenge on over to superstars of wrestling on October of 88. And that feels like that's probably, uh, when you start to get a little comfortable in the process, would that be fair to say? I did get, yeah, I was getting more comfortable with it. I got to the point where, um, I was really left. I wasn't left alone, but I was left more alone to be able to produce the segment became mine. And it became where he trusted me a lot more, where I was becoming a lot more comfortable with the character. And it's it's also where everybody noticed the the segment started to get longer, too, because I got more long-winded and I I was getting more comfortable with the character and I was adding more and more shit. And uh, Vince used to say, God damn it, Bruce, you can't say hello in under five minutes. And the segment would be written down for two and a half and (laughs) eight and a half minutes later, I'd be still talking a lot like this show where we go for sometimes fucking five hours. That's your fault. Uh, brother love was now being used to set up some angles. It was no longer just sort of filler. It became a part of storylines. And one of the first ones I believe was the Hogan boss man stuff. And we've covered this on Hogan 88 and the boss man, but it feels like it was probably a big deal for you to know that you're no longer just sort of filler. You're actually integrated in the storylines. Now I had, I had done, uh, I was now at the point kind of, and, and again, going back to the original concept of the brother love show folks make no mistake about it. Uh, I was ripping off Piper's pit. I was a huge fan of Piper's pit and I was looking to try and replace it with something without Roddy. So, when people say, oh, you're just cheap rip off of Piper's Pit, I have absolutely no argument for that because that was, you know, that was the pattern. That's what I was doing. And if you're going to steal from somebody, steal from the best. And I was stealing from Roddy Piper. So now to be in the position where some of these major storylines are developing on the Brother Love Show, man, that's a major event for me, especially knowing that it's Hulk Hogan most famous wrestler in the, in the business. So, you know, the first one was the stuff with boss man. We talked about that last week on the boss man show. That was cool as shit. But to me, the, the payoff of that was probably the best thing I I ever did in the business. Um, getting to work with Hulk and being able to go out and do the Saturday night's main event Sacramento with Hulk and with slick and everything and the physicality with Hulk prior to that, no one had touched me. No one had come close to putting their hands on me. 
And Vince would put Hogan and I in these situations in the ring, and we would go out and do different things where he was just testing the waters. And we had specific instructions under no circumstances was Hulk to put his hands on me. But Vince also knew that when the time was right, that Hogan was going to get the cherry. Hogan was going to be the first one to put his hands on me. And that happened on Saturday night's main event. And that was a major deal for me just for Hulk to finally get for me to get my comeuppance at the hands of Hulk Hogan and Hulk, you know, nailing me in the slam and the clothesline over the top, handcuffing me to the top rope, which I'd never taken a bump like that in my life. And uh, I thank Marty Jannetty and Shawn Michaels for teaching me how to take that bump over the top rope. Let's talk about um, your first Saturday night's main event. How big of a deal is this? Well, that that's, I mean, that was it. That was, to me, that was the pinnacle because not only am I working with the most famous guy in the business, but I'm doing it on NBC. God, yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, these days we just sort of talk about Saturday night's main event like it wasn't a big deal because it, it happened. But golly, dude, can you imagine like if tomorrow – you know, all of a sudden you didn't have Hulu, you didn't have Amazon, you didn't have Netflix. There was no internet. You don't have 500 channels. You got fucking 11, (laughs) you know, and what a big deal that would be to be one of the handful of things on TV on a network show. It's unbelievable. With, With the most famous athlete in the world. And by the way, I'm 25 years old. It's just make believe. It's uh, it's a wonder you managed to fuck this up, but you did roll time. <laughs> uh, WrestleMania five, I think is really the first memory. A lot of us have of brother love, uh, because you were on the Piper's pit. And then of course you mentioned that that's really what the interview segment, the brother love show was sort of based around how big of a deal was that to do WrestleMania five with Roddy Piper? Well, even going back to the original idea for WrestleMania five was Vince looking at the outside world and who he could bring in to make the WrestleMania five spectacle even bigger. So we had talked about once again, brother love and being able to get Jessica Hahn because she was still hot in the news. Uh, but we were looking at different things to spotlight brother love And that was the talk for us, um, like in December and January, what have you. And then I remember Vince calling me over to his office, and I'm sitting there across. He's sitting behind his desk, and I'm sitting in the side chair in front. And he looks at me and says, Rosie, I got some good news and I got some bad news. So, well, go ahead and give me the uh, bad news. Not going to be a brother love show at uh, WrestleMania. Sorry. And I've gone from knowing that I'm going to be at WrestleMania doing the brother love show. And he says, we couldn't get, we couldn't get Jessica Hahn. Everybody fell through. It's just not happening. And I'm devastated. I'm heartbroken. I, 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 but at the same time, I know shit happens. And he looks at me and says, tell me what you think about this. What if we had 
the return of Piper's Pit. And my eyes get wide. I'm like, oh, my God, this will be great. He says, and uh, we've got a handle on Morton Downey Jr. So I'm thinking about doing a Piper's Pit with Morton Downey Jr. And I'm like, gosh, yeah, Vince, that's that's great. That'd be wonderful if that could happen. And they, they'd be wonderful together. God damn. I think we need another mouth in there. And brother love. <laughs> and then it was, but it's going to be Piper's Pit with Mort Downey Jr. and brother love. And so then it was, that was the good news. But he, he played it up to where he had me all the way at the top of the mountain, yanked it away from me, and then uh, brought it right back around. So it, it was it was pretty cool. The, the only thing, you know, he looks at me and says, uh, how do you get along with Roddy? I said, I don't really know Roddy. And my brother and, and Roddy were good friends in Atlanta and stuff. I said, but I, I've never worked with Roddy. I don't know Roddy. As well, we've got a show coming up in Denver. Uh, I've got a date on uh, Hot Rod. I'd like you to fly out there and, and we'll do a little brother love show and you guys do a, a dry run, see how you work together. So I'm excited because I've always wanted to work with Roddy Piper and he was somebody I'd, I'd Definitely loved his work. And I fly out to, to Denver. Uh, I think it was cold. I don't even know if we were advertised. But it was just an opportunity for us to get in the ring and work together. And I get there, and Jack Lanza was the agent. We had a dressing room. We had a private dressing room. But it wasn't like a small private dressing room. <laughs> it was like one of the big team dressing rooms. And Lanza had put a thing on the door. Roddy Piper and Brother Love. So we had a dressing room uh, all by ourselves and everything. And Vince pitches me this idea of what he wanted to do at uh, at WrestleMania. And he asked me what I wanted to do. And I pitched him the idea of the Open with Piper, where I basically do Roddy Piper. And I interview Roddy Piper, but I answer all the questions in Piper voice. This is, God damn, I love that. But he also knew Piper hated when people imitated him. So he sends me out there to pitch it and I do it for Roddy. And he gives me the, uh, ha, ha, son, <laughs> that's real cute. The way is that supposed to be me? Oh yeah, that's good, man. You'll just go ahead. We'll just go out in the ring, man. And we'll just, we'll just call it out there. See how it goes. And, uh, Roddy about knocked me out in the ring. And, uh, thank God there were ropes that caught me from going to the floor, but it was all good after that. And, and we got to WrestleMania five. How nervous were you at WrestleMania five? <laughs> Again, man, uh, I'm a kid and I am walking out largest stage in the world, uh, for wrestling at Trump Plaza in a skirt. What I was wearing was a skirt and, um, Working with one of my idols in, in Roddy Piper, man, I, I was scared to death. But it, it was a, it was a thrill, and I think that the after I did my opening monologue and shit, and I was sitting there alone with uh, Morton Downey, a very strange calm came over me, to where I felt comfortable, and then Hot Rod hit the ring, and all bets were off. 
it's quite a segment, you know, um, getting down to your skivvies and we actually saw you get stripped down, uh, not once, but twice. And both times with Piper, you had the diaper segment later, and then he stripped you down here at WrestleMania. I think first who loved that idea of getting brother love and his, uh, tidy readies. Vince always loved the idea of getting guys, the managers and stuff down to their skivvies. And he, he always liked Jimmy Hart added something to that. Whenever Jimmy would get his pants taken off or something, the first thing Jimmy would do would be put his hands, both hands over his crotch. And then like when you would see uh, a female get her dress taken off in the movies, they would always take their hands and put them over their chest. Well, Jimmy Hart would do it over his groin, and then he would reach up and put it over his chest as well. And it just was a funny deal. So Vince had me do that uh, when I went out on the deal of WrestleMania five, But he liked that. And J.J. Uh, Dillon is actually the one who told me where to get the red bikini underwear. So he helped me get those. Just a little you know, pro tip there. Uh, but then later on, uh, the diaper bit, was was another Vince idea to bring me out of, uh, with the diaper and do all that stuff, have me tied up with the rope. And Hot Rod and I had to go out about two segments before, and we had to stand underneath a tarp in the arena, me in a diaper, and Piper under there with the rope and him just talking to me the whole time was, yeah, man. So when you were thinking, when you were just a little, little boy there, man, and you always wanted to be a wrestler, did you ever think you'd be under a tarp <laughs> and we'd be sitting here in a diaper? I'm wearing a fucking dress and you're wearing a diaper. What the hell have we done with our lives? And it was, it was a good time, but it's one of those moments people always remember. No doubt about it. Um, you know, the whole Morton Downey Jr. Thing in hindsight, did that go as planned? No, um, it was supposed to be probably about 10 minutes shorter than it was. But once, once I was out of the ring, there was, there was nobody there to re- to reel them back in. And I, I think that they both were making their best efforts to shoot on each other, if you will. And completely went off script of what we had laid out for him, the outline of what we had laid out for him. And I thought it was terrible. <laughs> and the funny part about it is later on, man, they edited, edited me out of the segment. There was a time there on the the old, what the hell was it called? WWF On Demand? Right. When it would air on there that I was completely edited out, edited out of the whole segment. Well, that was probably after you pulled a gun on a bunch of motherfuckers, right? No. This okay. is long before that. That was in early 2000s. Oh, okay. Um, let's talk about some of the angles, some of the memorable angles, and I'm sure you've got some. But, you know, man, that whole Hulk Hogan earthquake stuff, that's what I remember most about the Brother Love show. And me cheering on the earthquake. <laughs> just... That was just good, fun stuff that we didn't. Again, I watch these guys today and, and how everything is laid out, just painstakingly laid out in detail. For something like that, we went out and walked through it one time for place placement. 
of where Quake was going to go and where Hulk was going to end up. And that one, that one segment of Earthquake Quake squashing Hulk on the Brother Love Show, in my opinion, made Earthquake's career and made, you know, made that stamp that he's a top heel. And that was the impetus for their angle to last them for, God, they had a hell of a run with that. And it was just so simple. It was, it was the simplicity of it all. And it was just a big man squashing his chest on the Brother Love Show. Well, it was awesome. You know, it made an impression on me. Um, let's talk about Jake and Martell because that whole blindfold situation with the arrogance that happened on your show too. Yeah, it did. And it was Martell part of the, part of the reason that that took place on the brother love show too, was Rick was limited with his verbal skills. Rick wasn't the greatest promo in the world. And Vince felt that if we did it, I could put a lot of the words in Rick's mouth and I could help color up that segment. Martell was reaching his stride with the whole arrogance and the heel stuff. Uh, we blinded Jake on there and Jake, it was Jake's idea to do the contact lenses and have his, you know, have the white contact lens in, in the eye and to come back and do that slow, gradual return, which those kind of psychological things that he was just so damn good at the, the detail in it. And for me, the highlight of that, was the time when Martell came out and Jake came out quote unquote blind and wearing the dark glasses and Martell had a gift for him and it was a scene I came. So he gives Jake, Jake the cane and uh, Jake the cane. Yeah. Jake the cane. That was right. And Jake's looking around where finally, you know, I'm laughing so hard at it and Jake goes to grab somebody thinking it's Martell and I took the DDT uh, on the brother love set. And it was when I watched people take it, Jake Roberts, um, first guy I ever saw do the DDT. He named it the DDT. And when he did it, it looked like it planted the guy and killed the guy. But if you took it correctly, it was the easiest bump in the world to take. And if you just listen to Jake, then it, it would work out fine. And I thought that was one of my, that was one of my all time favorite segments. How nervous were you on that whole diaper bit about being out there about ass naked? You know, once you, once you're there, um, you know, the old adage of picture yourself or picture everyone in the audience in their underwear. It's, it's the same. It's the same feeling. Once you're there, what the fuck are you going to do? So I'm there in a diaper. I was pasty white, and at that point, I, I had to I had to make the most of it. It was, you know, it was my idea to do the suspenders on the diaper and still have the little rose on the suspenders and the big, uh, the big diaper pin in the middle of it. So it, it was, man, you got to own it. And if you can't laugh at yourself, then you're in the wrong business. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something that you shouldn't take too seriously. And you prove that again with your ultimate warrior, Sherry skit, what a fucking spectacle this was another favorite moment on the brother love show. Well, I think it was a favorite for a lot of people just for the humiliation on my part, but warrior, you know, putting me in a dress and the whole wig and everything, 
look, I didn't like working with Ultimate Warrior. This was a memorable deal. I've, I've got some cherished pictures of it just because I thought it was some classic, some classic stuff. I felt like Warrior rushed it a little bit, and we could have had a lot more fun with it. But he didn't like me. I didn't like him. It, it was oil and water. And we we did what we had to do. We made it work. But it was still one of those memorable moments for the whole issue between Ultimate Warrior and Randy Savage that made sense. And doing it on the Brother Love Show, I became a good foil. I feel like we should mention right now that you actually had another idea about the ultimate warrior, maybe for brother love, but it was years later. And you just recently told me this story, catch everybody up about that potential story. Oh my God. Well, no, cause I may still want to do that. Um, well, okay. There was a, when I, uh, had come back, uh, in, God, whenever, whenever Warrior came back with the whole Destrucity deal for WrestleMania 12, I'd pitched an idea to be a fan uh, sitting in the arena and Warriors talking about Destrucity and getting people in shape and, and living the lifestyle and so on and so forth. And the idea was I would dye my hair dark. Uh, I was overweight, still am overweight. But Warrior would choose someone from the audience to live the life of destrucity in the Warrior way, drop weight and, uh, and get into shape. And I was willing to do all of it. Um, pitched it. Vince, I don't think, was really on board with it. Warrior hated it. Didn't want to do it. You won't live the life. You won't do what you need to do. And I'm like, actually, I will. I'll do, you know, I'll do it. But the idea was that once I got into shape and once I got into the warrior way and I became a warrior, so to speak, that I would then lure him in and reveal myself as brother love. And it was a way to turn undertaker back heel and do something with uh, the ultimate warrior to get revenge for him. What he had done to me several years before, basically running me out of WWE so never, never transpired. It was just an idea that was pitched and, and shot down, but, uh, I thought it would have been cool and I would have done it and gotten in shape. Probably wouldn't have stayed in shape, but I would have gotten in shape. Well, I love it. Uh, that would have been a fun idea. Let's talk about some other silliness from back in the day. You know, there's a lot of, you know, moments that sort of stick out. There was a segment with, uh, the Bushwhackers. Oh boy. Everybody, you know, the Bushwhackers, they, they ate their sardines. And, and that was during the time that, you know, they would always eat the sardines. So they would have sardine breath. And Vince thought it'd be hilarious to have the Bushwhackers come on the Brother Love Show and basically feed me sardines. And they would get it in my hair. They would get it all over shit and everything. Well, two things happen. The Bushwhackers come out. And of course they do it. It's the last, it's my last brother love show of the night and they get it everywhere. They got sardines up my nose. They've got sardines, I ate a bunch of sardines. They've got it all over my hair. I mean, they must've mashed no exaggeration, 10 cans of sardines in my hair and on my face everywhere, all over my suit in my, you know, in pockets in my suit everywhere. So I come back 
to Gorilla afterwards, and everybody's, ah, <laughs> ah, god damn good shit. And Andre is laughing his ass off and everything, and Vince is laughing his ass off, and the gorilla position then was basically an eight-foot table with monitors on it. And it was in a, up against a wall. Nobody really had anywhere to go. Gorilla Monsoon was there and a few other people. But everybody's having a good laugh at Bruce and the sardines. And I had really long hair, too, at the time. So I look up, and I've got Vince in his suit, Pat was there, too. Andre was there. Gino, a few other people. And the Bushwhackers. And I just start shaking my head violently. And when I shake my head, all of those sardines and all that grease and all that oil just starts flying like a fan <laughs> across everybody. And Andre, who's seated and laughing, is like, <laughs> and Andre's backing up, almost goes ass over tea kettle in the chair. Vince is trying to get up and get away. Now it's not so funny anymore when the shoe's on the other foot. But then the rib again was on me because uh, Vince realized, and on Vince, he realized that, oh, shit, one of the uh, segments we had done earlier had fucked up. And we had to redo a Brother Love segment the next day. The only suit I had is the one they just fucked up. Oh. So we had to send out people to try and get get that one clean and get everything done so that I could redo a brother love the next day. But watching Andre backpedal and not kill me was, was one of the best moments ever because it was like, I actually got the boss to sell and got Vince back a little bit. And he had sardines and shit, you know, just all over the place as well. Unbelievable. Best read. What about uh bad news? Brown, Jack Tunney, got anything there? God, bad. You know, Bad News Brown, badass son of a bitch in real life, Alan Quage. And Jack Tunney was not a worker. Jack was a promoter out of Canada, but he was our fictional president. And poor Jack Tunney. Bad News Brown goes out, and we're doing a little angle with uh, Tunney and Bad News where Bad News wants a shot at Hulk Hogan. And bad news has got Tunney, and he's basically choking him out. He's got him by the collar, and he's bringing him down. Jack Tunney damn near passes out on us because bad news is choking him so damn, so damn hard out on the set and comes back and just, like, got lightheaded and damn near fell over. So when you watch that segment, know that actually bad news Brown is really choking out poor Jack Tunney then. That was one of those moments of, like, oh, fuck, I hope he doesn't die. I hope thoughts that go through your head die. when you're doing brother love and you're in red makeup and shit. Do you even, um, and this is a pretty big moment in the history of the show. And I kind of forgot about this until I thumbed through some research. You introduced the LOD to the WWF, which is a pretty big deal. It was, it was a huge deal and that, you know, big things happened on the brother love show. It was in Indianapolis, Indiana. And the reason I remember it so well is that I had had an emergency root canal two days before. We flew to Indianapolis, and I got dry socket, which is when the interior of your mouth, where you got the root canal, basically dries out. And it's one of the most painful things that you can have. It's kind of like having the root canal without anesthetic. And I was in a lot of pain. 
I went to a dentist in Indianapolis that day. And this day in Indianapolis, I had five Brother Love shows to do. One of them, later on in the night, was introducing for the first time the Legion of Doom. As was no shortage in the WWE back in those days, um, I was in supply from just about anybody that would walk by. Everybody knew I was hurting, and they would make sure that I had something to alleviate my pain. And I was chewing on pain pills like they were sweet tarts for a vast majority of the day. Finally, I get to the Legion of Doom and their introduction. And I just look at them. I remember uh, Joe and Mike both looking at me going, Mike just going, we got this, brother. <laughs> I was like, I guess I had a look at my face that I wasn't home. I was hurting, uh, taking quite a few uh, Vicodin. And when you go back and watch it, and I, I watched it recently, there are points where they are literally holding me up with their spikes on the Brother Love Show, so much so that it went into my jacket and it and through my shirt where I was bleeding from them puncturing me, and I had no clue because I was just out of my mind at that point. But we made it through it, and it was good, and I think the Legion of Doom did all right from being debuted on the Brother Love Show. No? That's well, all my. I did. I made the Legion of Doom. A lot of fun segments with the second most recognizable athlete on the in the world, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, and uh, there was a, there was a Savage Angle with Sherry and Liz. Lots of fun stuff that you could touch on. I mean, this is really what I grew up on. Well, you know, going back, give me anything with Dusty Rhodes and any opportunity to work with Dusty in any way, shape, or form, whether it was behind the camera or in front of the camera. I loved, I loved the man, Virgil Riley Ronald III, and I loved the character, Dusty Rhodes. So it would be fun because I could be the producer and I could have Dream look at me like, Pongan here. Let's just go ahead and do our thing out there. Whatever comes out is going to come out. And I would pull shit on Dusty where I would steal his shit before he could get it in. Knowing, <laughs> having a good idea where the hell he was going to go. And I would hit him with, so, brother Dream, me being the bull of the woods, if you will. And he would just look at me like, pull it in, stop stealing all my shit. But it was all—it was always a blast, and probably the greatest moments um, of my career and of my life were the times that we worked on the road, and I got to split my time between Randy Savage and Liz, traveling with them, and then traveling with Dusty, and that's where the second most recognizable athlete in the world that story comes from. Uh, and just being being on the road with with Savage and Liz was God. I uh, wouldn't trade it for anything, anything at all, because that's where I got the real Randy and the real Liz and the real human beings. And we, you know, shit, we played putt putt. We had, you know, we did normal things, and we had a blast doing it. And that all came from just being able to to do that brother love gig and. And it all worked out. No doubt. Uh, you told us a lot about traveling with different people, uh, as brother love. And 
I think everybody remembers the Dusty Rhodes second most recognizable athlete story. Do you have any other traveling stories with him? Or I know you've shared an Undertaker with us uh, when you guys uh, were traveling together after a house show, maybe somewhere in Chattanooga. Any other brother love traveling stories you can share? Oh my gosh! Uh, you know it was it was always fun when people thought they knew who the hell you were, but they had absolutely you know no idea who you were, things of that nature. But being with Dusty, we always had good nutritious meals like pork rinds and hot dogs, uh, (laughs) wherever the hell we were. We, we get into Philly one day and Virgil's like, pong it. I know there, the little hot dog stand right down here. It's going to be going to be under the overpass. And you go on and you get the chili, the little chili, but it's that onion chili shit they put on the hot dog, then it's really good shit. We drove around for 30 minutes under the overpass where he knew where this hot dog stand was. There was no hot dog stand. There was no nothing. And he would just make shit up as we went along that made it all entertaining every night. And he would look at me and go, Pritchard, you over there like Murdoch. You're drinking your beers and all this. I'm over here sipping, but the thing is, I'm still going to be sipping in three hours. You're going to be passed out in about 40 minutes. And the words of wisdom and and just listening to dream through all that stuff, uh, again, absolutely classic. And getting to to travel through the years with, with Bobby Heenan and going through and people looking at Bobby and I going, is that your son? Just just good shit. And it, uh, couldn't happen without, without brother love. Lots of times brother love was on house shows doing different duties. And I know we even saw some results that I covered once before where you were refereeing some matches. How does this come about to where not only are you a character, but you're making the fucking house show loop. Well, it started out in a spot show in Norwalk, Connecticut, where Vince was just looking for something else to add and looking for somebody local. And it was like, Brother Love, yes, we'll, uh, we'll add you to the show and referee this match. And the match was, God, I think it was Duggan and Dino Bravo, something like that. And I went out and, and did it. They happened to be there, uh, liked it. It was different. And Vince liked to... I like to get out of the office. I like to go and do house shows and different things. So it was a way to get me more exposure without having to do a brother love show. And my favorite run was doing the Rougeau's and the heart foundation matches. It was when the heart foundation, had just turned baby face and the Rougeau's were doing their all American boy stuff. And they were some pretty hot heels with Jimmy Hart. but going through, uh, going through and doing that the first time was in Boston. And I remember getting to the building and Vince had given me, you know, how he wanted the match laid out and so on and so forth and told me to get with the boys and explain to them what we're going to do. And the premise of the match was that brother love is the heel referee is letting the baby, the heels get away with everything and stopping the baby faces on everything until the very end for the finish when finally Brett blows the comeback and uh, they all get to me and we go in for the finish 
and I do the super duper duper slow count where they blow a gasket and the heart foundation gives me their finish and uh, pin them and everybody's out. So I'm laying this out for Brett and Brett's the general. I mean, Brett's pretty much laid out the match for everybody anyway. And I said, okay, now when you start your first comeback, I cut you off and I, I stop you. And he goes, wait a minute. You mean I'm blowing my first baby face comeback in five years, whatever it had been since he had been a baby face in Calgary. And you're going to cut me off. I said, yeah, you're going to get a comeback later in the match, but, but, but here I've got to cut you off. He says, yeah, why don't you fucking try that out there? He goes, "Eh, that's not going to happen. Brett didn't, it didn't get it once we got into the match. I think he did. And it, and it all came together, but I had a lot of fun with those guys going out and just, just working back and forth. And, uh, Brett and Neidhart and the Rougeau's just an absolute joy because that, that shit was fun. And it was a night off and it allowed me to do something different than the talk show segment. Well, and it, uh, it was fun, you know, I'm sure to see you sort of get your ass kicked in some of these house shows. Um, that hurts my feelings, Conrad. Let's talk about some of the house shows that you actually worked where you were on top. Uh, according to the rumor and innuendo, you fucking found yourself in the main event against Hulk Hogan. What's up with that? Classic story. I love telling this and I, we may have told it before. I don't know, but it was, um, Long Island, New York, first time. Hulk had been away for a long time. And the the show wasn't doing that well. So Vince calls Hulk, says, hey, when are you uh, coming back to Stanford? And he gave him the day, says, we have a show in Long Island. Would you, uh, would you do the show? And he says, what do you want me to do? I mean, I, I can't come back and work here. He says, no, 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 no. He goes, I'm thinking about uh, bringing you back and do brother love show. And we'll just advertise you and brother love. He says, well, damn, how are we going to get that out there? He goes, I, uh, it was roughly 10 days. So he says, don't worry about that. He goes, we'll get it out there. So Vince tells me, he says, go and get in your brother love stuff. I need you to cut promos for the New York market about the return of Hulk Hogan and that you were bringing Hulk back, and Hulk is going to be back in New York at Long Island, Nassau County Coliseum, on the Brother Love Show. We sold out off of one promo. I sold out Long Island all by myself with Hulk Hogan. Uh, but it, it, you talk about a kick in the ass, um, being in the ring with Hulk, New York. Um, no, folks, I didn't sell out. Long Island, but I did, I was there with Hulk and was able to, uh, be a part of that. And in that main event, he kicked my ass. Yes, he did. But from that, what happened is, is when Hulk would, would take some time away and not, not be working every night and Hulk could pick his shots and Hulk would make the major markets. So he would call Vince and say, Hey, what about, you know, these dates, bing, 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 bing. And lay them out. So it would be like Houston and Dallas, L.A., Chicago, just the major markets. And sometimes it would have shows in between where he would be off 
And sometimes I'd be off. Sometimes I'd go and work. But he'd go, just give me brother love. And I got to go and do like the top markets, top shows and work on top with Hulk doing brother love shows and him basically kicking my ass at the end of them. But it was brother, you talk about fun and making some great money. Uh, that was, that was some good times to run with Hulk and it would be, we could do whatever the hell we wanted because he trusted him and trusted me to just go out and entertain. Well, I mean, it's pretty ridiculous that you were able to do that. I mean, I guess that's the best of times. Let's talk about the worst of times. The fucking ultimate warrior is a guy that you'd like to talk about that you did not have the best time working with his brother love, especially when he kicked your ass, any other, uh, people that maybe weren't the most fun, you know, it was guys that couldn't talk and guys that thought that they could, um, Dino Bravo was a chore. Dino was a chore getting him out there because Dino thought he was a good promo, but when you got him out there, he had absolutely nothing to say. And if he did have something to say, you couldn't understand him anyway. Dino was tough, uh, because, he was a top guy in Montreal and he was a top guy in the Carolinas, but man, it just, it just didn't work. And it was like pulling frigging teeth. Same thing with his manager, Frenchie Martin, because Frenchie couldn't understand and Frenchie thought he was a great promo and it wasn't. And Vince used to look at me like, God damn it. You got to get it out of them, pal. And if they can't do it, you do the promo for them. So I'm having to do, their promo basically now isn't it true that you were going to you told me earlier that you're going to take the ultimate warrior and you're going to rip the face paint off of him and i would have to do the promos for him and another one that just for whatever reason in my opinion i thought he was a great promo before he came to the wwe but just got stage fright or whatever the hell happened was ron bass Ron had a hard time and Ron was somebody we tried and I was a big proponent of his. So was Pat. We tried to do stuff with Ron, but he was, he was another one. It was like pulling teeth and it was tough. Anybody that couldn't talk. I, sometimes I, I could do the promos, but if they thought they could talk and they wanted to interject, it, it could be difficult. Let's talk about, um, Zeus. Because Zeus is somebody that I think a lot of people probably don't even consider that you would have been there at the same time. But I know my timeline's right. You had to be doing some stuff with Zeus. You've told us a story before about being in the ring with him and sort of helping him direct traffic. You've got to have some fun. Brother loves Zeus stories. Yes, Vince uh, charged me with taking Zeus around the country and doing the Brother Love show to introduce him to our audience sell no holds barred the movie but also to get zeus over as a monster character and oh bless his little heart man zeus was someone that i had to do all of the talking for in the ring he didn't know the wrestling business at all and was a movie star he was used to lines and he was used to hard cues uh positioning you know, marks on the floor for where he's supposed to stand and what have you. But he was terrible. <laughs> That's all I can say about Zeus, man. It was terrible. It was so challenging. The story you're talking about being in the ring with him, 
I've got the microphone down by my side and I'm telling him, all right, big man, get up on that second rope, slap the shit out of yourself. Give me some growls. Okay. Get down now. Go over here to the other, other corner, do the same thing. And he's not doing anything that I'm telling him to do. And we get back to the dressing room afterwards. And I said, tiny, I'm talking to you out there and I'm telling you what to do. You got to do what I'm telling you to do. And he looks at me and says, Oh, was you talking to me? Had no clue. So he was a challenge. Zeus was a bit of a challenge. Well, let's talk about uh, Sergeant Slaughter because we've got questions about this before. There was a great American award at SummerSlam 1990. And this is something that doesn't get talked about very much. But you even mentioned once that you have that. I think it was on a Facebook Live where you mentioned that. What, what can you tell us about that? I do. You know, it was Sarge coming back and Sarge coming back as a heel. Vince, uh, there were people that looked at the Sergeant Slaughter character and they felt so strongly about that character being a baby face. They wouldn't accept him as a heel. So the idea became, all right, we've done these vignettes. We've done a lot of things trying to get Sarge over as a heel. Sarge's promos were so damn good that it was difficult to accept him as a heel. So Vince wanted to do this thing at SummerSlam uh, where he presents another heel who people definitely did not like in real life or on camera, Brother Love, um, with the Sergeant Slaughter Great American Award. But the, the most controversial thing out of it was, you know, we did the award and then it, it became the whole skirmish in the Middle East with Saddam Hussein, and we were starting to do the thing with Slaughter and General Adnan. But Gene Okerlin and I do an interview at the very end of the night, and Vince fed me a line that I hit that, oh, God, we got raked over the coals for, where I talk about, you know, I'm, I'm the great American, and brother, Sergeant Slaughter, who is the greatest natural leader since the great general Sad Damn Hussein. And fade to black, we go off the air. Well, that fucking people got hot. And that was, you know, during time, it, one of the things that we didn't talk about that I, I go back to the garden. Brother Love was somebody that got death threats and lots of them. And so much so, I remember Terry Garvin sitting in the office one day. He goes, hey, yeah, we got the brother love death threats. We need to find out where these people are sitting so we can book them afterwards as the man who shot brother love. They'll draw. I'm telling you, they'll draw big baby face. And again, I'm 24 years, 25 years old, scared to death, thinking somebody's going to be crazy in the crowd and shoot me or try and kill me. But. Good times. <laughs> well, maybe not the best time is the time you tried to heal a blind fan in a wheelchair. And I think this happened right down the road for me here at the Von Braun Civic Center here in Huntsville. At the time, I think a lot of people even sort of jumped to conclusions and thought that this is the real reason you got fired, not for being just a, a turd burglar backstage. Well, all right, well, let's let's explain the segment first of all. Uh, there's three kinds of people in this world, Conrad. There's those that try. There's those that do their, just give it their best shot. And then there are those that do whatever it takes. 
I did whatever it took. I healed that son of a gun because when he came up onto the stage on the Brother Love show, he was in a wheelchair. He had never walked before and was blind. You could tell because he wore dark glasses inside at night. And I laid hands upon him and healed him to where he was able to walk away and he could see for the first time in his life. We were at the Mon Braun Civic Center. Long TV taping. And in the middle of it, there would be times where we would have to change tapes and there would be everything would stop down. But there was a technical difficulty that we couldn't do anything in the ring and we, we just had downtime. We were killing the audience. I jokingly say to Vince, well, I can go out and heal somebody. You don't have hair one on your balls to go out and heal someone. So there was one of the truck drivers, one of the ring crew truck driver guys. I think his name was Paul Dawson. And there was a wheelchair sitting up against the wall. And I said, hey, man. I said, uh, get in the wheelchair. I got some dark glasses. I said, put these on. I said, just, just listen to me and follow me. And we had Terry Garvin wheel them out. And I healed his ass on TV, but it was just, it wasn't, well, I mean, okay, let me clarify that too. It wasn't for TV. It never, ever was for TV. It was something for the house to entertain the house and to fill time until I got the cue that whatever uh, difficulty we were having, that everything was good. Now they shot it, the truck shot it, but again, it wasn't, it was never intended for TV. I don't know how many months later I get a phone call. Uh, what the fuck phone call? Right. Like, uh, what do you mean? I said, you aired the healing. So no, I didn't air the healing. I, we, I didn't even know we taped it. And he says, well, I just got a call. And I believe it was you. Yeah. It had to be USA. Uh, that they were pissed off over the healing. They were getting complaints. Not only did they shoot it, but when they edited it, they put in a shot from the uh, handicap section of a couple old ladies with binoculars watching the segment from way up high in wheelchairs. So um, didn't go over well on TV. And, of course, I got blamed for that. But uh, contrary to popular belief, it's probably what Dave Meltzer wrote. Um, no, that is not – that's not why I got fired. I got fired for being an asshole. Uh, nothing to do with healing anybody and bringing good fortune to that poor blind man who couldn't walk. Well, uh, it's a memorable segment. It's on YouTube. If you want to go out of your way, you can uh, throw it in your Google machine because, uh, woo, that's something to see. We might try to link it over at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And I feel like we should mention that you never know when Bruce is going to pop up and do a little Facebook live and take some of your questions. So if you haven't already go like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. Let's talk about the undertaker. Of course, we talked a little bit about the undertaker on our survivor series, 1990 episode. We've covered him in two other separate episodes. And you've told us how you sort of finished up managing him. But did you think that when you finished managing the undertaker, that that was really the end of the brother love character? 
Hindsight being 2020, I probably should have. Uh, I was given, you know, I was given the choice of managing Undertaker of managing him full time and going on the road with him or continuing to do my job back in the office uh, in the production facility. I chose production and I oftentimes wonder if I had chosen the other one, if I would have been there seamlessly, probably not. I probably would have fucked it up somewhere along the line knowing me, but, uh, there's oftentimes that I sit back and think, what if, what would have happened if, if I didn't, uh, make the choice that I chose. And in hindsight, you think maybe it was a mistake. I think everything happens for a reason. And I, I made the decision that I felt was the right one at the time and I stand by it. So I, like I said, I think I would have screwed up something else to <laughs> piss somebody off uh, down the road anyway, as well. I had a lot of maturing to do at that time in my life. Well, you know, I mean, I think everybody did. Let's talk about the last segment you did though, because I think that was, uh, the ultimate warrior, right? I mean, is it sort of the end of the character for an extended period of time, that ultimate warrior segment? It was, and it was a way to get me off of TV and to get me away, uh, off and bring Paul Barry in for the funeral parlor. So, you know, it was explained to me, this'll, this'll be the last one for a while. Maybe we'll bring you back down the line. And again, handwriting on the wall, maybe I should have known better, but is we, we laid it out. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to go out, let me go out in style. And we talked to warrior and Vince told me to work it out with him. What kind of physicality we wanted to do and what have you. And I really wanted to, to take warriors finish. And I wanted him to, to kill me. Uh, well, if you're going to go, go out with the guy on top and make it mean something. So I'd asked him to, to do the press slam uh, over his head, and I wanted to take the bump to the floor, over the top rope to the floor from the ring. And where's like, no, nah, I don't want to do that. I'm like, well, shit. Um, okay, but it's your finish. Why wouldn't you want to do it? And, and if I'm going away, I'm not coming back. So destroy me. Because yeah, I don't want to do that. I'll do the I'll do the tackles and the splash. Could we try it? So he, no, nah, I can't get you up anyway. He goes, you're, you're, you're too fat. You're too heavy. I can't get you up. What? Okay. Um, you ever done it before? I said, no, but I mean, I show me how to do it and don't grab my nuts. Um, let's, let's do it. So he reaches down. He like tried one time. He had oil and shit on and I couldn't get up. And I said, well, try again. Let me. Let me get up there. So Rick Rude is there, and Rude and um, uh, Mike, Road Warrior Hawk, there. They're like, you know, no, nah, man, Bruce, you just got to get stiff and pick me up. And they pick me up over their head. All right. And I, they got me up. I went up with them and, and was able to hold myself up on their shoulders. And they're like, man, it's easy. He goes up. It's all right. Warrior just didn't want to do it. He just, he just, for whatever reason, didn't want to do it. And so that's why we did what we did. You know, he, he hurt me. Um, 
cracked my jaw, uh, broke a few teeth, and I just didn't think it was necessary. I thought it was kind of a shitty bully thing to do, but is what it is. And well, that was it. And then you got your ass fired in May of 91. You come back in September of 92. When you come back, was there ever any discussion of maybe revitalizing this brother love character and bringing him back? Well, there was discussion of brother love. However, it was, it was made clear that we weren't bringing brother love back and that they had no desire to bring the character back at that time. And of course, Vince never say never pal, but he brought it up to, to just say, you know, preventive. If you're thinking about coming back and doing brother love ain't happening. You know, you be behind the scenes, you work with me and Pat and that's it. So he brought it up, but he brought it up to make sure that, uh, I didn't have any hopes and desires to come back and be brother love full time again, man, or would have, uh, been a little different in 1993 had that happened, but he did make one appearance with, uh, Brett Hart in early 93. What was that about? Well, it was about, you know, Brett was having a, I don't, I hate to say difficult time, but Brett going out and doing promos and being able to tell his story. This was during a time that Vince was starting to write promos for guys and wanted guys to have everything written down. So we were challenged with that. Then with Brett, he was like, we really need somebody. We need like a Piper's pit. We need somebody like that. We need a brother love. And they said, well, I've got brother love. So he had me go out and do a, a brother love show in the ring with Brett with the championship, just in an attempt to give Brett that heel foil in the ring, uh, verbally. So you could have a verbal confrontation a little bit. And it was a one-off and it was completely out of the blue one time. And, and then, you know, that was it. It was like, okay, we'll, we'll go do this. And, and, uh, and brother love goes away again, put him back up on the shelf. And then of course we did see a couple of different characters pop up, uh, very, very briefly. I guess we should just uh, talk about them now. Cause I don't know when we'll talk about them again. Rio Rogers. What the fuck? That's the genius of Jerry Jarrett. was one idea Jerry Jarrett had original idea that Jerry Jarrett had, uh, that made it to WWE air fucking awful. And his idea, you know, well, you do that. You know, that voice you do, you, you know, the, where, where you talk with that list and you do that. That's so funny. You're funny. And I think Vince wanted to throw him a bone and it's like, God damn, Bruce. Yeah. Do that voice. You do. <laughs> You mean this one right here that don't sound like anybody else in the entire wrestling business? This is just something I made up on my own. I ain't imitating nobody. It's getting funky like a monkey. Uh-huh. That, that one. You're funny. So Rio Rogers was uh, Jerry Jarrett's one and only idea that he ever contributed there. Um, it was god-awful. Lasted a couple of weeks. Actually did a... Uh, couple of weeks of color commentary with Vince on wrestling superstars, believe it or not, um, which was pretty bad, but it, it, at least, at least it got Jerry Lawler hired as a color commentator. 
I was so bad that Vince was open to bring in Jerry Lawler. So there you go. That's real Rogers' fault. And you know, I also did the wizard, but that was just something. If they needed a color guy in the studio, instead of being Bruce Pritchard, I could be the wizard and step in and do color. And that was a tribute to uh, the Grand Wizard and Ernie Roth. Vince was a big fan of the Grand Wizard. And he said, well, just be the wizard. Be the whiz. I'm the whiz. So that's all those were. Um. 1995, you come back and we just talked about this the other day with Ted DiBiase, um, the ringmaster, all of a sudden brother love is back. What's the decision making in bringing brother love back in 95? You know, it was Vince's decision, believe it or not, again, to, because of the million dollar belt and the million dollar champion that he felt that tying all of it together with brother love. He also, I think, was looking at possibly bringing the Brother Love show back and doing a segment more than this. Um, but it only lasted, you know, the, the one time, and it was the debut of uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, man. And he got to cut his promo with, put your hand on the TV, you know. And it was, it was the beginning of an era, man. One of the best ever. Let's talk about, and I think this is, uh, what a lot of people want to know about. We've gotten tons of questions about it. The January 97 appearance you made on shotgun Saturday night, managing the flying nuns. What the fuck is this? <laughs> the headbangers had come in and the headbangers were a, a product of James E. Cornette. Jimmy had used them in smoky mountain wrestling. Great, great guys, great tag team. And we had actually used them to come in and be enhancement talent for us. Vince wasn't sold on the headbanger gimmick, but he liked he liked the guys and he wanted to come up with something for them. So I don't out of the blue, it's like, what about the flying nuns? We'll make them nuns. They'll They'll be duns and well, the habits and the whole nine yards, the whole nun outfit, and they'll flash their white panties from time to time. It'll be great shit. So he settled on the flying nuns gimmick. And of course, you have Sister Angelica and Mother Smucker, or the two flying nuns. And of course, man, I don't know if it was Cornette or Vince or who, but before I knew it, the nuns need a manager. The only logical guy is brother love. And that lasted probably three weeks of me walking the nuns out to the ring and hitting the Godwins with the book of love. We actually shot vignettes at St. Patrick's cathedral where the nuns walked in and walked out of St. Patrick's cathedral. We shot vignettes where they got arrested and, we put them inside of a New York City police precinct and had me walk down the street and we got cameras and everything. No permits, no nothing. This is in front of the precinct. Two men dressed as nuns and a fat guy in a white suit and a red face walking down the street, walking into the police precinct and walking out with the nuns. Cameras just rolling the whole time and then we cut it all together. Um, 
as soon as it started, <laughs> it ended just as quickly. Vince was looking at it as an act only for Shotgun Saturday Night and not to be a part of any of the other programming, that it would be unique just to the Saturday Night Show. And then he fell in love with uh, the Headbangers and and wanted to use them on the other shows and decided, now nah, we'll do the Headbanger gimmick and go from there. And Cornette was a big proponent of that. They're Headbangers, motherfucker. We don't see Brother Love again until WrestleMania 17, the gimmick battle royal. We get questions about this all the time. I know you talked a little bit about how it came together on our Cornette episode, but uh, catch us up. Talk us through the gimmick battle royal in uh, 2001. Well, the God, it just became a, this organism that kept growing and growing and growing. Let's take some of the biggest gimmicks from the history of WWE, put them all in one battle Royal and have this gimmick battle Royal. And everybody's throwing out names and, and different shit. And then it came, well, brother love's got to be in it. I did not want to be in it. I wanted to be as far away from it as I could. As much as I love performing, and I do love performing, uh, you reach a point sometimes where it's like, eh, and, and, and when you're a producer, I, I hate suggesting myself for anything because it's like, oh, he's just trying to put himself on TV. Yeah, he's the producer. He's the writer. He's writing himself into the story. So I didn't want that. But Vince was adamant, no, you've got to be in the Battle Royal. And it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, Corny and I had a lot of fun in there, beating the shit out of each other in the corner. It was Corny's idea. As soon as you get in the ring, we'll just find a corner and beat the shit out of each other there. Not do anything with anybody else. Um, that lasted as long as it could possibly last before Michael P.S. Hayes came over and we started throwing punches back and forth and the goon and Sarge and the Bushwhackers had a lot of fun. But it was a fun it was a fun segment. I got to stay in there pretty much damn near till the end. I should have won. If it was a shoot, I mean, I, I would have won. I am a three-time Black Belt Hall of Fame. How many times? Three. How many times? Three. You know. I can't believe we do that every week and you still didn't adapt it the right way. I'm sorry. Well, okay, three time, Thank three you. time, three time Black Belt Hall of Fame. I was trying to be different. You know, I feel like every now and again, I have to, um, <laughs> I have to sort of not only lead the horse to water, I have to force oh, him God. to drink. Uh, let's talk about the next time we see brother love, uh, because it's sort of randomly. It feels like, uh, the undertaker gets a box on SmackDown in February of Oh three. And you know, if you come out of a box, you're over, right? Oh, I was over getting in that box, motherfucker. Yeah, yeah, I blame Paul Heyman and Brian Gewertz and David Lagana for even suggesting me and bringing it up. But I guess it made sense because it was Philadelphia, the city of brother love, and uh, it was Undertaker. So, eh, I get it. Did uh, Another one I really didn't necessarily want to do, but it was a blast because it was the first time that I really got to work with Undertaker in an adversarial role. And he wasn't really sure what the hell I was going to do. And I got to have a little fun in there with him by hugging him and holding on to him until I finally dropped. That son of a bitch didn't break. And he's hard to break character. Your last appearance for a long time 
went down, uh, right before raw 25, there's a string of house shows in the Northeast. And I, I sort of found this weird in my, in my notes, like, why are you back here sort of randomly working house shows with Vince McMahon and Zach Gowan? It doesn't make any sense. Well, the angle at the time was with Roddy Piper and Zach Gowan and, and Vince and so on and so forth. And Piper had gotten fired for his comments on HBO. Roddy was no longer with the company. We had a whole string of house shows that had advertised uh, Roddy Piper and Zach Gowan doing some stuff. So Vince and I are talking, and he's like, what do you suggest? And I made the suggestion, well, Vince, I mean, you're in the angle with Zach. Why don't you make the shows? And you replace me. If you're going to replace somebody, you always try to replace him with a bigger star or at least equal to. And replacing Roddy Piper with Vince McMahon, to me, made sense. And he countered that with, why don't we both do it? What the fuck am I going to do? He goes, we'll bring Brother Love back. And that that was to supplement Roddy Piper's absence was bringing Brother Love and Vince McMahon to the house shows on this, this whole loop. And we get there, and Vince looks at me and says, what are we going to do? <laughs> I, I don't know. I thought you had an idea when you suggested bringing me on this little uh, charade. And we went out, man, and every night, and it, and it got to be it got to be what I could get away with each and every night. But I would go out, and I would start the thing as, as Brother Love, and then I would bring Vince out. And I would lay hands upon Vince and I would heal him in the ring. And I actually got him down on his, on his knees one night and I'm laying there and I've, I've got my hands on his head and I'm messing his hair up, mussing his hair up and doing the whole be healed to where it finally reaches up and grabs my hand and says, all right, pal, enough of this bullshit. Go the fuck home and get Gowan out here. But from there, Vince's idea was we bring Zach Gowan out. And why not have a match? So every night it was a match with me and Zach Gowan, which wasn't much of a match at all. Uh, you know, I'm not Ric Flair. I know that's hard to believe everybody, but uh, we would go out and that's, as I mentioned before in a previous show, I forget which one where I took Zach Gowan's nub every single night in my face. He would do the, the moonsault onto my face every night for the finish. Why do we? It hurts. Have, we should have had a nubs in the face shirt by now. Yeah, I, you know, I'd give that one to Zach. Well, uh, this is the last time we see you, you know, as brother love until, I mean, we know you were fired in 2008 for threatening to shoot motherfuckers. Uh, that whole story is available in the archive, something to wrestle.com. If you're not familiar, Bruce actually managed to smuggle in a Rambo machine gun. It was a belt fed machine gun. Uh, and he took it into, uh, Titan towers and was ready to do damage. And Stephanie saved everybody. It's a civil war cannon. <laughs> it was, it was, and it's Steph- a civil war cannon. Let's see if you're going to fucking, if we're going to go, let's go. Stephanie wrestled you down and removed the hand grenade from your hand, reinserted the pin and all was saved. Uh, shoved it up my ass. And, yeah. <laughs> So let's talk about it, man. You got to come back. We touched on it earlier this year. Um, 
a big anniversary of raw and, and you were there the 25 year, 25 year anniversary. I, I venture to say not the same suit. No, <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I did think about just going to Bruce Pritchard.com and getting one of those brother love shirts and wearing it. No, I did not have the suit and the suit was thrown out of my window into Galveston Bay in roughly 2013, I guess. Um, all I had left was a jacket, shirt, and tie. And I threw it out threw it out the window when I was going on the overpass over Galveston Bay after an appearance. And I didn't have a suit. So I had to get an entire new suit. I found one of my uh, Brother Love shirts that I had. So in that and it still fit. Too. Why did, more amazing. Why did you throw it out? Frustration. Um, I I just was really frustrated and I, and I was done. I felt I was done with the business. I felt I was done with the history of Brother Love. I didn't want to do it. Didn't want to be associated with it anymore. I was just at a really down period in my life, and I just finished up an appearance. And I'm just looking at it. I, I had, I'd worn the jacket and the shirt and everything, and the, and the tie was with the shirt. I didn't even wear the tie for the appearance. I was just done. I, I didn't want to be reminded of it. And if someone asked me from that point forward, I would be able to say, no, uh, I don't have the suit. I threw it out. And then, then they asked me, and I had to get a suit. So... Um, it was pretty cool. You know, it was, it was nice going back. It was, it was nice putting the suit on and it was nice saying, I love you to a television audience and, uh, and being welcomed back. So that led to, you know, us being on the network now and, and people actually, uh, taking my phone call and speaking to me. So that's pretty cool. It is cool. Uh, what of your brother love stuff did you keep? I guess we should sort of peel back the curtain. Uh, one of the things you kept is when the genius actually made you the doctor of love, he gave you like a little graduation robe and you gave that to me years ago. Uh, and it's part of my collection now, but you probably kept some stuff for your other kids. I'm your oldest, but you probably kept some stuff for your other kids too. What do they have of brother love? I have the, I have the original book of love and there were two books of love made I have the original one. The second one that was made, I gave to uh, one of my best friends and attorney, uh, Mr. Robert G. Taylor, uh, RGT for law. And uh, he has that, but it was kind of special. And I have uh, I have a lot of the rings that I wore. Other than that, I don't have a whole lot from from my brother love days. And for somebody who likes to have memorable stuff, that's it. I mean, I've got an action figure. That's pretty damn cool. A lot of people are probably wondering, where can we see a picture of this book of love? Go on over to Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Pritchard show. And our man Hancock is going to have you a picture of that book of love. What do you think the, uh, the legacy of the brother love character will be? I love you. It's this podcast now, is it not? That'll be the legacy of Bruce Pritchard, I hope. Um, well, but I mean, I hope, even on the WWE Network, you know, they promote you as the Brother Love character. I mean, even on Raw, they run a commercial right. and they sort of show you as Brother Love. And 
we've sort of jokingly referred to ourselves from episode one. Here we are at a hundred as brother love and the mortgage guy. And you know, you used to be brother love and I'm forever the mortgage guy, but I mean, I think it's this podcast as silly as that sounds. Well, you know, I, I like to look at my whole body of work, man, and I'm proud of it. And I'm proud of the brother love character. I enjoyed, I loved my time as brother love. I had a hell of a run as brother love and it was something out of my head. And when it's your own creation and it's a part of you and it's an extension of who you are, I think that comes across more honest and, and brother love truly was an extension of, of who I am. And it was an extension of, of me. And I enjoyed portraying that character. I, I was brother love. And when I put the, when I put the suit on, when I put the makeup on, I became brother love. So, um, I'm proud of that body of work. I'm, I'm proud of, I'm proud of my entire body of work in the, in the business. And I can point to brother love as what the majority, you know, uh, folks for many years, that's all they ever knew of me was brother love. And so I'm even more proud to, to point to this podcast and say, now they get to know Bruce Pritchard as brother love. And that's something I never thought would actually ever take place. Well, man, we're excited to be here for episode 100. We've got some questions from Facebook, but before we get there, oh, and we've also got a huge surprise for you. Stay tuned a few more minutes. You know, this is uh, something that we normally do at the end of every episode. And, and this week we had uh, sort of all hands on deck. I want to give a shout out to uh, Super Dave Miller, who managed to help me pull some questions this week. Brad wants to know, um, was anyone considered for the gimmick battle royal, but you didn't get of course, we know that you were a part of it, and we're going to talk about WrestleMania 17 someday, but chat me up. Did you try to get anybody and weren't successful? The only one that sticks out uh, top of my head is ur, 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 ur. the Red Rooster was considered, asked, and declined. Wow. Uh, Michael wants to know, was there ever a storyline that Brother Love turned down or refused? None. No, never. Nothing. Joe wants to know, did a fan ever try to jump brother love? They were coming over the railing during the boss man. Uh, the third brother love that I did the very first night I ever did brother love. Yes. They were, they were coming over the railing at me when they saw me come out. Uh, this next one is from, uh, I know a listener here on the show and we got to talk about this guy after I asked the question. D the minion wants to know, did brother love get hate mail from televangelists? Not, not from televangelists that I know, but brother love got a shitload of hate mail and death threats. So do you know who D the minion is? No. D the minion is an adult film producer, uh, for websites, uh, on the internet machine. And apparently he has, uh, recruited several adult film stars into listening to the podcast of the female variety, by the way. And I think, our, I think our 2% is being upped because there's a handful of girls and a couple of are uh, following the show account that are big fans. And this D the minion guy is sort of spreading the word of love in his own way <laughs> for something to wrestle. So shout out to uh, the minion and Whitney Wright and all of his other recruits over there. Okay, well then I'll I'll give you another little brother love tidbit. Back in the day there was a director of adult films who his stage name or director's name uh 
gimmick name was Seymour Love. And he was named, he took his name after Brother Love. So D-Minion, look up Seymour Love, and that was a Brother Love nod there. Unbelievable. Uh, Joe wants to know, many times on commentary, Vince would remark about Brother Love's weight. Did this ever piss Bruce off, or was it always just good-natured ribbing? I was usually feeding him, so... Uh, <laughs> no, it was good-natured ribbing, and, and that was something that that we did. Tony wants to know, did Hulk Hogan feel the most comfortable with you during his interviews? It feels like all of his big angles happened on your show. Hulk did feel comfortable with me, and we worked well together, so that always helps if there's that comfort level there. But yes, he did. Um... Soda Hunter wants to know, is there a particularly embarrassing live moment you can remember from the Brother Love show? Maybe one that the general fan has not seen? The the most embarrassing, and only because it was an accident, was in Seattle, Washington, during a match with uh, Dusty and uh, Savage, where I went up to the top rope to come off the top rope onto Dusty, and I'd taken my suit jacket off, and my pants split. And just my pants completely split when I got up to the top rope. And now I've been, you know, it sounds funny. I've been basically in my bikini underwear and I've been in a diaper, but that was embarrassing because it wasn't supposed to happen. And that to me was one of the most embarrassing moments ever. Uh, Nathan wants to know, was there ever an angle where brother love would have been caught embezzling money? You know, in the very beginning, the magazine just ran stories like that, but uh, there was never really uh, Brother Love was out there to get other people over. And we tried not to make the story about Brother Love. Tony wants to know, why was the decision made to keep the Brother Love theme playing during the entire segment that never happened under any other interview segment? Because it sounded good. It just was a cool. It was it was cool and it was different. So it was to make that segment of the show different than everything else. Dudes with views want to know, did you ever pitch brother love as the manager of any wrestlers we don't know about? I did not. I I thought that, um, for the longest time I fought even being a manager. And the only reason I pitched the manager was because I was a big fan of Mark Calloway and wanted to manage him. Was there ever a face turn considered for the character? Hell no. How could you turn brother love baby face? Was there ever a gimmick match that was considered for brother love that wasn't used? No, there, there wasn't uh, Hulk pitched actually having matches with me and stuff, but Vince wasn't interested in that and didn't want me in the ring. Uh, friends talking nerdy wants to know when you came back on SmackDown in 03, was there ever talk about bringing back the character or was it always a one-off always a one-off? Mitchell wants to know, hypothetically, why was Brother Love's face so red? He was full of love. Patrick wants to know, who was Amanda Ultimate Warrior? A fan out of the audience. We just picked. Joe wants to know, Bruce mentioned Vince wanted Don Morocco to play Brother Love. Were there ever any serious planning around that? No, it was, you know, that was a comment that Vince had made to Don when we actually did the rehearsal and that was the first time and only time I'd ever heard of it. Okay. So next week we're going to be covering the British bulldog here on the show. And if you'd like to ask a question about the British bulldog, you have a couple opportunities to do so. You can do it on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. You can also do it on the Twitter machine at Pritchard show. 
It's going to be all about the British Bulldog next week. Uh, we've also got a, a packed schedule coming your way. Uh, but I want to remind you that on Wednesday of next week, before we do our British Bulldog episode, we've got a phenomenal episode on the WWE Network about Rowdy Roddy Piper. There'll be lots of stuff on there you've never seen before, ever. Uh, and on uh, the episode to follow the British Bulldog on May 25th, we're going to do something pretty fun, boys and girls. It's a love to know episode. So we've had lots of questions. When are you doing another Q&A episode? We're doing it on May 25th. Mark your calendars. We're going to have a poll for you next week for our June the 1st episode. On June the 8th, we're going to cover King of the Ring 93. On June the 15th, we're going to cover Bad Blood 03. On June 22nd, we're going to cover Sable. On June 29th, we're covering King of the Ring 1998. On July the 6th, it's all about Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake. On July 13th, it's about Muhammad Hassan. On July 20th, it's Invasion. And on July 27th, it's Vengeance 2003. So there is your lineup for what's coming. But Bruce, I got to tell you, man, you know, we've teased it and we've hyped it. And I don't think we've overhyped it. Not one bit because we've got something that's just fucking ridiculous. How would you describe what we're about to launch here? I was just about to say to you, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, when I first, when I first got it and you sent it to me and showed me the work this gentleman had done. I was blown away by the front page and didn't even get beyond that. Um, the amount of work put into this, I, I'm, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's our body of work in segments, you know, bites. There's, there's something we've been able to do here on the show that we've been really proud of. We've created essentially sound bites that we turn into t-shirts at brucepritchard.com and they become sort of classic moments and bits on the show. And I can tell you, we're just ripping this directly off of Howard Stern. You know, all these years later, people still yell, Bubba Booey. Well, and, and we've got chocolate titties and Mark Romero and all the silliness, RLS and blah, blah, blah. And one guy has taken it upon himself to archive fucking all of it. And that gentleman is a man named Greg Gunter. And Greg Gunter sent me an email on March 22nd. And it was titled a website for listening to STW audio clips. And I replied in fairly short order. Are you fucking kidding me? And then I thought, well, that may not have expressed my gratitude. So I sent a second (laughs) one that says, this is the fucking coolest thing ever. And gray said, okay, that's the reaction I was hoping for. So if you are going to appreciate what we're about to throw your way, I need you to follow this guy on Twitter. He is the official something to wrestle super fan. This level of dedication is unbelievable. He is at gray Gunter. That's G R a Y G U N T E R. And he probably didn't want me to out him, but man, you got to get your just due. I can't believe that you've done this. We've talked about it enough. Let me give you the web address. It's www. Don't you love when people say that S T G stw.com that's stg stw now of course that stands for something to wrestle for the stw but the first three letters are stg 
because you're going to something to generate something to wrestle. And on this site, it's over 3000 audio clips of the silly nonsense we've said on this show that you can play at random, that you could explore and that you could make a playlist. Yes. I know what we're signing up for. You guys can now make us say anything you want and you can recreate your own silly conversation with Bruce and I, and I'm sure that a lot of our other podcast friends are going to have fun with this and take everything we say completely out of context, but this is some fun stuff. So shout out to Greg Gunter. Uh, we sat on this for a couple of months because I thought, man, this is something fun that everybody will really enjoy. Uh, so if you haven't already stop what you're doing, go to stgstw.com and you can literally just click around whatever you'd like and check out all the different silliness. I don't think I can really hype this enough. Can I Bruce? This is the fucking coolest thing ever. Yeah, I was absolutely blown away when I saw it at first. And then once I got in and started playing with it, I was mesmerized. It is it is an incredible piece of work. And if you do nothing else, follow him and say thank you, because I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. It, it really is unbelievable. Bruce, is there let's just click on one now. You know, we've got a variety of things in here. Give, make a recommendation. Of, of somebody or something you'd like for me to click on chocolate titties. Okay. Let's look up. Uh, I'm going to click on Vince and then explore. And then I'm going to type in. Yep. There we go. Are you ready? I'm ready. Chocolate titties and chocolate titties, chocolate titties for everyone. Everybody loves chocolate titties. And they have to have titties. Vanilla titties. I want vanilla titties. Tan titties. We gotta rub titties. Good God, let me... Yeah, he's futuristic. He's got guns and cannons. It's awesome. And he shoot from his... From his wrists, from his ass, from his titties. Titanium titties. Luscious. Voluptuous. Caramel titties. Mm. This is real. I can't it's believe this bizarre. is real. STG, STW. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for 100 episodes. This was not supposed to happen. We were brother love and the mortgage guy. We thought, man, if we could get 30,000 downloads, that would be something. Last week, the Big Boss Man episode got 200,000 downloads in the first 24 hours. The show's bigger every single week. It's because of you guys. We really appreciate it. Greg Gunter is a perfect example of the type of unbelievable good fortune and luck and goodwill that we have been extended. And we want to showcase what he's been able to do and share it with everyone. Hopefully, you're digging what we're doing. We're trying to create content that you enjoy. And this was a special episode for us because, uh, you know, we sort of joked about it at the top, but man, there's a lot of podcasts out there that don't have the type of success that we've been lucky enough to have, and they don't make it a hundred episodes. And you guys have stuck with us and turned it into live events and turned it into a YouTube channel and turned it into a WWE network show. And we didn't do this by ourselves. You made it happen for us. So we wanted to uh, bring you the brother love story and sort of tell you how it all began and how we were all introduced to Bruce. And 
Bruce, I can't thank you enough for believing in me and rolling the dice and trying this thing. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm just a wrestling fan. I've never been in the wrestling business and I'm the luckiest fan on earth to get to do this with you. And I've had a great time doing it for these last hundred and one episodes because one oh one comes out tomorrow, the 1992 Royal rumble. Well, I thank you for talking me into doing it. And, uh, most importantly, I thank our audience who tunes in every week and has made it all possible and tell your friends and tell them to subscribe and check us out. And, um, just two words, man. Thank you. I mean, I just, I can't believe this is real. God damn. God damn. It's scary. God damn. It's absolutely amazing, but it, but it is real. And who knows where the hell we're going to be three years ago. I don't know that we would be having this conversation <laughs> and who hey, knows what conversation we're going to be having in another hundred episodes. Motherfucker. 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 Can you believe this is real? Cray cray. What's going on? I just, uh, I'm overwhelmed. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. And you need to go to STG, STW. Thank you, Greg Gunter. Thank you for allowing us to make this uh, a little special rollout for episode 100. Hey, by the way, it's going to ask you to put your email in there. Just do it. Uh, Greg's not going to solicit you. Fucking we are. Roll time. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're going to say you some shit. And we are out of time. Tune in tomorrow for the 1992 Royal Rumble. Tune in next Wednesday for Roddy Piper on the WWE Network. And next Friday, it's the one and only British Bulldog. We'll see you next week. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? Yeah, how many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.